This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, January the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so as you've heard repeatedly throughout the throughout the uh, BOC morning show, it is pretty slick out there. Constantly seeing reports on social media of people simply not driving to conditions. So it is slick underfoot. It's slick on many of the roadways. So you know what you have to do to have a safe commute to wherever you're heading today. A kind of funny collection of emails overnight. Uh, I suppose because people know I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan, they think there's some salt to be poured in the wound by sending me emails regarding the Toronto Maple Leafs forward William Nylander, who got paid yesterday. Good for him. I mean, money in sports is out of control. So he's tied for six in NHL scoring. He secured a deal of eight years, $92 million, 11 and a half on the average per year. It's good for him. Anyway, Nylander gets paid. He's been a bit of a problem, though. Remember when he held out? I think that really set the Leafs back a little bit. And now all the money they got tied up in what they call the Big Four. Anyway, if you're a Leafs fan and you're happy or sad about it today... Bring it on. All right. Uh, on this date, 1979, number four, Bobby Orr. His jersey was retired by the Boston Bruins. And with all the betting that we see uh, constantly being bombarded with betting ads during watching pro sports, it was on this date in 1991, pardon me, baseball, fa- baseball officially bans Pete Rose from being elected to the Hall of Fame for betting on baseball. You know, the hypocrisy sees no. And in the world of communication, the iPhone first unveiled by Apple CEO Steve Jobs on this date in 2007. It wasn't made available for sale until June. I think it was like 468 bucks for a 4-gigabyte iPhone, and that really revolutionized the way we communicate and the information we have in the palm of our hand. All right, this is a nice heartwarming story. It's about foster care and adoption. Right off the bat, if you've been involved in trying to adopt a child in this province, help us understand the process, the time, the frustration, the cost, because there's lots to be left, uh, lots to learn about adoption. But this story is about foster care that turned into adoption. Daphne and David Rendell, they knew they wanted to expand their family, apparently through foster care. They brought in five children. So uh, Dustin, 12, Ethan, 10, uh, eight-year-old twins, Brooks and Carter, Katie, four, on December the 12th, they were all became adopted children. Now, they worked closely with the department to make sure the adoption could all happen on one the same day. So it's pretty heartwarming stuff. We hear from the Foster, uh, Foster Family Association always talk about the need for more and more houses or families to be willing to adopt a foster child or bring a foster child in, pardon me. But this family, the Rendells, went down the path of adopting all five. Pretty great stuff. They have their own biological daughter, uh, Dylan. So gaining five siblings apparently was a lot to take on, but she says she'd have it no other way. So congratulations to the big family that is now Dave, Daphne, Rendell with their children, Dustin, Ethan, Brooks, Carter, Katie, and Dylan. What a great story that is. Anyway, if you know anything about the foster care system and or the process of adopting a child in this province, we'd love to talk to you this morning. And on the world of family. So a couple of things that were expected to see some sort of solution or some sort of resolution in 2024 and early in the year. And this one is about in vitro fertilization. 
So the province has, you know, looked at it a couple of times. They finally granted a contract to a company called Thinkwell Research and Strategy. They're based in Halifax. They uh, moved an office to this city in 2021. They got a contract for over $122,000 to look at the viability, the possibility of bringing in vitro services to the city or to the province. So at this moment in time, you know, given the fact that people have had to travel frequently at huge expense, the government brought forward a program, $5,000 subsidy to help those who are traveling for in vitro, and it's up to three times you can avail of it, so up to $15,000. But the report coming from that organization is due early this year. The trick will be whether or not, you know, normally the government tries to have all the kind of documentation and consultation in hand and done between November and January, all in an effort to apparently have some impact on the pending spring budget, generally in March. So unless that report's in hand right now, then it's unlikely we're going to see any forward momentum. Now, there's kind of two different schools of thought out there as to whether or not we actually have the population and the demand and or we have the specialists to offer it. My understanding is quite clear that we have the specialists to do the services, to be operating inside an in vitro fertilization clinic, but that's one of the policies that are outstanding in 2024 that were anticipated to be brought to bear in some form, either rejected in full or to move down the path of creating the clinic. Also in the world of family, the midwifery program. So back in 2019, there was lots of talk about it. They were establishing a midwife program in Gander. That program would see a team of four midwives, full scope of maternity services at the central part of the island. Then there was talk of having uh, midwifery offered in Labrador by... 2024. Now it's kind of gone by the wayside. When we talk about obstetrics, now of course in Gander, Grand Falls, Windsor, there was a duel between the communities as to where uh, the obstetric, obstetric services would be offered, and now lo and behold, it's going to be offered in both Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor. But what happened to the midwife program? So the midwife, uh, the chief midwife at the time was a lady named Brianna Thompson. If you are indeed still the province's chief midwife, and give us some sort of update about where we are, because that seemed to be a really good complementary offering inside the world of healthcare because it's not all that long ago midwives are leaned on heavily in this province including my great-grandmother apparently who was a midwife in the St. Mary's Bay region that delivered hundreds of children so there's a couple right in vitro fertilization clinic maybe some movement this year the midwifery program that was promised to be expanded this year all the way into Labrador doesn't look like it's happening looks like it's stalled in full you want to take it on you know what to do. And in the world of healthcare and offering, the province is talking about what they're touting as improvements to the Medical Transportation Assistance Program. Long been a concern, especially for folks in Labrador, just the enormous cost of getting from Labrador to, say, for instance, St. John's. And then it was always the case that you had to pay up front and be reimbursed. So here's some of the new changes that have taken place, specifically for the folks in the Labrador Grenfell Health Zone. 85% flight assistance rate has been introduced for those traveling both in and out of the province with airfare costs exceeding $8,000 in a 12-month period. Okay. For those on the island, increased assistance has been introduced to help cover the cost of flights for specialized insured medical services out of province. That coverage includes $1,000 towards the cost of the first eligible flight, 75% for additional airfare costs between $1,000 and $8,000, and 85% cost, uh, cost greater than $8,000 incurred over the course of a year. So yes, improvements. It'd be curious to hear from folks in Labrador and other parts of the island where you've tried to avail of the medical travel assistance program and 
and what do you think of these improvements? Other changes or tweaks that have been offered inside MTAP. So an increase, in the, pardon me, an increase in the claimable per diem rate for purchase accommodations to $150 a night in the province, $175 per night out of province. Increase in private vehicle mileage rate from 20 cents to 25 cents per kilometer for patients who drive more than 4,000 kilometers during a 12-month period. All of these changes are retroactive back to the 1st of December of 2023. So yes, certainly some meaningful and significant improvements is it where it needs to be i'll leave that up to you and your opinion that you can offer here on the program this morning and of course if you're expanding your family we need to know that the provincial government is on top of and creating the necessary spaces for ten dollars a day daycare the last time we got an update now they have opened a portal for people to sign up and say that you are indeed looking for daycare because unless we have something to measure against we'll never know whether or not we're hitting targets and how successful the government is in trying to implement it as they've described so the last time we got an update you know numbers can be misleading they talked about all the work they're doing with the uh, the pay scale for early childhood educators which is critically important they're talking about the number of spaces that were created but folks who are advocates in that field they say it's important to recognize the net gains not just the big high level numbers that government's talking about because when we add it doesn't mean that we haven't lost any so it's the net gain issue that has to be addressed for a full understanding as to how government's doing on this particular file because both the federal liberals and provinces where they're talking about $10 a day daycare, affordability and accessibility, unless people have full actual access to it, then it's the epitome of carpet for the horse. Getting affordability is, is important, but accessibility obviously has to be dovetailed with it for it to be meaningful for folks who need it. On top of that, where's the update for junior kindergarten? September 2022, they were talking about eventually having 35 schools using junior kindergarten. There was a pot of money, some $347 million from the feds. Uh, That was announced back in May of 2022 to create some 600 more child spaces. As of last year, as opposed to 35 schools, we were in 13 schools. So was there an expansion to junior kindergarten this year? I'm not aware of it. And if you're listening in the government office and you say, well, there was, well, just send me the information because I couldn't find it. So the junior kindergarten, of course, is important. The 13 registered sites as of last year, East Point Elementary, Elizabeth Park Elementary, Elwood Elementary, Gander Academy, Bay Roberts Primary, Paradise Elementary, Bishop Abraham Elementary, Persalvic Elementary, great name, Lewisport Academy, Woodland Primary, Eastside Elementary, Donald C. Jameson Academy, and Admirals Academy. If there's been additions to the list, we're happy to take that on as well, because you've got to get that right. Okay, stock housing. Now, again, numbers. So an announcement yesterday down in Pleasantville from the minister responsible, Paul Pike, Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation. So, okay. Eight new units. Okay. Good. Eight new units. The plan is to build 40, so 32 left to be attended to. Inside the eight, four are fully accessible, uh, four reserved for women and their children. So this is all part of the earmarked $80 million plan, right? That's good news. But when you look at the numbers on the wait list, and yes, we know about the misspeak, mislead, misinterpreted numbers last year, as opposed to 750 units that were told were in play, turned out to be 11. But even in eight, plus 32, for a total of 40, we're way behind. 
because the wait list at Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corp is 2,900. So it does feel like a drop in the bucket. I guess it's hard to look down your nose at new housing options being made available here. And I know inside that wait list of 2,900, many, some, I don't know how many, are currently housed. But the attractiveness of Newfoundland Labrador Housing is the affordability piece. So, okay, eight, 32 yet to be built. And we'll see how quickly they can get those uh, units dealt with. And we talk about the renovations afforded to those that were boarded, uh, boarded up. So, yes, housing advocates, you know, I'll take it from the people who are actually working in that field day in and day out. They're encouraged, I think, is a fair summary. Then you talk about transition housing. Okay. You know, we do have this laddered approach to housing in this province. Homeless, try to find your mercy shelter, try to find your transitional housing, try to find your permanent housing. And in the world of transitional housing, and this has been in play for a little bit, but it was announced formally or officially yesterday. So the Comfort Inn, or the Comfort Hotel on Airport Road, that 140 rooms therein will now be transitional housing. Again, the advocates on the ground are encouraged by. There will be questions about who gets government contracts, and there always will be. They're going to be unavoidable. So the person who operates and owns that hotel is Judy Sparks Canoe, who has an official written statement offered on this front. So, you know, I look, someone sent me an email saying, wow, the results of the question today are quite extraordinary on that front. You know, maybe government's been late to the dance, and I think that's absolutely fair to say. This seems like a step in the right direction versus being in an emergency shelter without minimum standards that can be unsafe and unhealthy. This feels like an option. I don't know how it's going to work. There's going to see the so-called vetting of the guest, what exactly that criteria uh, looks like. I don't really know. But that's an important step as well, because, again, whether or not you're someone who's been able to get into Newfoundland Labrador housing, and apparently there's a senior living down in one of those senior buildings in Pleasantville, and they talk about maintenance and upkeep, and she tells me a very, very different tale about busted pipes and holes and walls and months and years to get someone in to do the, uh, the needed repairs, and we'll uh, figure out her story a little clearer here during the, co- the coming break. So this is a three-year lease. They're hoping to have people living in it by March. It's about $7 million per year, so not an insignificant price tag. But for folks who are on the ground working with homeless folk and looking for transitional options and permanent solutions, they say that it features some wraparound supports, which, of course, is critically important. Mental health and addiction supports, harm reduction services, so the wraparound that people speak about. There's going to be Newfoundland uh, Labrador Health Services employees on the ground. They're going to be able to access, access three meals per day in the restaurant inside the hotel. So when I heard the announcement, I thought, well, this is certainly better than some of the options that were in place prior to that announcement. But apparently... Given email reaction and results on the question of the day, many people think that, no, it's not a good option. I'm not exactly sure why. And, you know, housing is going to be an ongoing concern for people right across the country. If you read any newspaper uh, articles from elsewhere across Canada, you'll see that we are absolutely struggling in the same light as many provinces. And here's one of the quotes come from Doug Pawson at End Homelessness St. John's, of course, working intimately on the ground day in and day out. Here's his quote. Integration of health services, mental health supports, and addiction within the hotel itself is transformative. That's a really great opportunity. A lot of folks struggle with their health, so having access to that on-site is going to be a game-changer. So maybe, Mr. Pawson, if you'd like to expand on your thoughts this morning, you know you're always welcome on the show. And then we get to something that you've heard me speak to a few times in the past, is food and the willful misleading of the purchasing public. 
So they get away with some things because they are technically in line, but realistically, this is kind of gross. So this story comes with a fellow who wanted to bolster his protein intake, so he decided to get on the Kellogg's Vector, which he thought was a cereal. It's in the cereal aisle, but this is a beauty. So they say that it has uh, 13 grams of protein per serving. The fine print tells the further tale. So the fine print says that the flakes of Vector cereal contain 5.6 grams of protein. To get the full 13 grams, you have to use the recommended 200 milliliters of skim milk to be added to the flakes. And why did they get away with it? Because it's not a cereal, apparently. It's a meal replacement. I mean, come on. You know, with the, the price of food and the skimpflation and the shrinkflation and this sort of labeling, which is not fair, people feel like they're getting cheated. So on top of the prices, which drive me around the bend, going to the grocery store can be a real test. But knowing that the companies are doing what's technically allowed but is really patently unfair, I mean, should we have to bring a magnifying glass to the grocery store to know that we're getting into what we anticipate we're buying at the volume and at the cost? So there's a lot to it. And yes, so there's going to be some work done by what's the government department uh, involved here. Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada going to look at some of these grocery retail practices to ensure that we're not trying to play some technical win and loss game when we go to spend our hard-earned money for a bit of food for ourselves and our family. But anyway, that one gets me. All right, a couple of quick ones. Interesting. Year-end interview with former Premier Roger Grimes, and a lot of it was discussing Gull Island. Now we know the ongoing conversation with Hydro-Quebec in the province of Quebec regarding the Upper Churchill, and back in 2002, there was pretty much a deal in hand. There was consensus between Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador to move forward with the development of 2,225 megawatts at Gull Island. You know full well it's part of the discussion regarding 2041. Now, Dennis Brown, the province's consumer advocate, is coming on the show later this morning. We'll pick his brain on that one and the Newfoundland Power uh, rate application and all the rest of it. But, I mean, some of this, it looked like Quebec was really highly interested at that point. That's over two decades ago to develop gold. Even going so far, they thought that Quebec would be responsible for the $4 billion price tag and the financing of so imagine Gull Island, 2,225 megawatts for $4 billion. Look at what we're getting for our 824 megawatts, which is firm output, which will never uh, never be satisfied. But you got to believe. And this really does speak to the fact that they're probably closer to a deal at Gull than ever before. Mr. Grimes also goes on to talk about, you know, Quebec being the purchasing uh, entity of the power. You know, look back in the day at the cost to trans- transmit the electricity through uh, Labrador, Ireland, links to the northeastern United States, and the Quebec corridor always came back as the most viable option, financially speaking. So it's pretty interesting to hear Roger Grimes talk about this. Had the Liberals won that election, then we may already be consuming power generated at Gulf. So I thought that was pretty fascinating to hear him speak to it, and we look forward to speaking with uh, Mr. Brown a little later in the program on that front. Just one societal note before we get to your calls. Someone sent me this article yesterday, and it's really quite stunning. We know there's an issue with consumption of a variety of substances in this province, including alcohol. And then we know the prevalence of the societal ill of getting behind the wheel while intoxicated, drunk driving. Here's a story coming from British Columbia. So there's this fella who uh, just recently, it was back in August, he had committed his 21st drunk driving infraction 
and convicted 21 times of driving while intoxicated. 66-year-old Roy Hyde's conviction and incarceration of five years, that's what he got as five-year sentence upon his 21st conviction. So he was actually on a motorcycle and had an accident. And somebody, knowing Roy Hyde and his propensity to drive drunk, actually was willing to get on the back of the bike. He had a passenger with him. So a drunk driving conviction can you know, lose your vehicle, lose your license, lose your insurance, a bunch of money to your lawyer. You might lose your job, a relationship, a home. So there's massive concerns therein. The province of Quebec, just once again, I'll pick up on that particular issue, because they have the most stringent impaired laws. Currently, if you get convicted twice within a 10-year period, you get an automatic interlock breathalyzer device installed in your vehicle for life. They actually haven't even moved for the uh, uh, allowable, pardon me, the allowable blood alcohol level. They have it at 0.5, 0.05, and of course the rest of the country at 0.08. So they've got the strictest laws, and some of the issues regarding the numbers of the prevalence of drunk driving in the country are headed in the, in the wrong direction. Just in the province of Ontario, the OPP reported results from 20. 23, which showed a 16% increase in repaired arrests. Over 10,000 charges were laid, 250, uh, 215 of them laid during the week during Christmas. Impaired driving charges in Canada are trending downward after 2011, but in 2018, that's the most recent year where the data is available, things started shifting once again from Stats Canada. The rate of police reported incidents of impaired driving rose to almost one-fifth, 19% from 2018, to 228 incidents per 100,000 Canadians. Mm. So the rate of alcohol uh, impaired driving increased by 15%, while the rate of drug impaired driving increased by 43%. So if the law and recidivism and punishment is not going to curb the prevalence of drunk driving, they're actually in the United States based on some moves in Congress, to make vehicle manufacturers look at potential detection systems. You know, measuring the blood alcohol, whether it be from your breath and or your skin as you touch the steering wheel or the ignition starter button or what have you. So imagine, 21st time. Now, apparently there's someone in Quebec that's part of this story. I couldn't verify it, that he's been busted uh, 33 times. No, this in South Dakota. This guy, they call him Mr. DUI. What a handle to have. His name is Jerry Zeller. 33 arrests with convictions between the high teens and the low 20s before he actually died in house fire, but 21 times, BC guy? Man, oh man. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Tony Chubbs is going to kick it off this morning talking about the Engage NL review of the Wildlife Act. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of Labrador Hunting and Fishing, Asso- Fishing Association. That's Tony Chubbs. Morning, Tony. You're on the air. Morning, Patty, and uh, Happy New Year to you. The same to you, Tony. Welcome to the show. Good to be on. Uh, just call in a couple of things. Uh, you've had a pretty good discussion uh, late last week, I guess, and early part of this week regarding, uh, I guess, the uh, use of rabbit snares and restrictions around using them because of the uh, protections put in place for the uh, Pine, Martin, and Newfoundland. Um, just one point I'd like to just raise with that, and uh, I sent you some information, of course you read it and uh, put it into your program, that uh, populations of Pine Martin in recent years have increased and have moved uh, further across the island and in a larger extent across the, the, the island portion of the province. Uh, most of that is probably not due to uh, restrictions on type of snaring material that's being used or, or equipment. Uh, we've probably got a lot less trappers than we had in the past. We got a lot less people out there snaring, hunting, fishing, shooting, sports. Uh, 
it's an old person's game nowadays. You don't see a lot of kids getting involved with this. So the population of people out there that actually are harvesting and probably incidentally taking Martin are just not there anyway. As many of your callers said, they've rarely ever seen it. Uh, your biggest thing that's probably contributed to the uh, recovery of the Pine Martin population in Newfoundland, and I didn't hear it, uh, anybody discussing it, is that in Newfoundland we only have or had originally 14 native species of land mammals, one of which was a pine marten. The only other one that the pine marten would feed on is a meadow vole. So since that, there's been numerous species that have been introduced to the island, including snowshoe hare, uh, chipmunk, squirrels, that sort of thing, and most recently are redback voles. And no doubt that is probably the sole reason why the pine marten has, re- has increased and will continue to increase because the redback voles are populating throughout the island and the marten are just going to follow. Is it a black vole or a bank vole? Red back vole. Okay. Is there such a thing as a bank vole? Uh, yes, I believe there is a bank vole. Okay. Right. Yeah. Actually, bank voles were introduced to Newfoundland too. I, I thought so. Anyway, that's why I asked. Uh, so, so we're house mouse. Uh, I got the list here: brown rat, masked shrew, and red squirrel. So, it was a very depopulate uh, mammal population prior to these introductions. But the most recent one with the redback bull, that's the main prey of pine marten in Labrador. And there's no issues here. We use steel wire all the time for rabbit snare, no problem. Uh, and uh, uh, just another point I'll make too as well, uh, the province's information that they provided on using the 22-gauge brass wire, initially when they came out with that, they admitted that there'd be a 25% loss in uh, retention of rabbits using that type of wire. I mean, like everything else, I mean, there's not just one thing that leads to either loss of animals and or a rebound in the population like we're apparently experienced with the Pine Martin. So I appreciate you sending along the info. Yep, and uh, I, I agree with most of the snarers on the island. Most people in Newfoundland, a few people on Avalon hunt with uh, beagles and that sort of thing. Most people snare uh, snowshoe, snowshoe hares, uh, and certainly they got to be frustrated. Uh, we all... Most people here in Labrador use steel wire. It's quite effective. Kills well. I've never caught a marten. Uh, I know a couple of people that have over many decades of, uh, of rabbit snaring in Labrador, but uh, uh, I don't see the necessity of it anymore. Uh, the um, recovery to population of marten or the increase in population, not necessarily a recovery, sure. has, has already happened. And they're becoming more widespread, so uh, I don't think that needs to be in place as it uh, was required initially. Fair enough. I mean, if we're talking about protecting the pine marten, there's also needs to be a conversation about how humane it is to snare with uh, wire or that brass wire or the six-strand pitcher cord if the rabbits are getting away. Because like a fellow called here yesterday, he'd set 10, lose six. So there's a humane conversation to be added uh, to this. Sure. And uh, uh, just as a segue into that, and uh, I was talking to Dave Williams just just before we got on the show, dear, and apparently it hasn't been discussed or brought up in your show or online, that uh, the Wildlife Division or, or the department is doing a review of the Wildlife Act, its regulations, as well as the uh, Endangered Species Act. 
And I very much applaud them for doing that. And I certainly uh, put it out there to anybody to just Google Engage NL, and you can go online and put in information. It's a, it's a fixed survey, but towards the end of the survey, there's an opportunity there to put in any requests you may have for changes in the regulations, changes in the uh, uh, Endangered Species Act or the Wildlife Act. Yeah, we've actually had a couple of conversations about it. Barry Fordham was on and promoted it. There was another gentleman called Mike. Uh, he was uh, quite frustrated with some of the suggestions of more stricter penalties and the way enforcement officers are operating. So we have put it out there a couple of times, and the closing date is actually a couple of days from now. It's on the 11th. Yep, 11th is Thursday. It's another point, though. The unfortunate thing that they put this up online on the 13th of December when your show pretty much shut down shortly thereafter – uh, as is everybody else's lives when they get around a Christmas period and very short time period for people to have input into this. Uh, I had difficulty. I filled out these Engage NL surveys several times, and I've had difficulty getting online. Uh, best method I've found, request a new uh, password, and they'll send you a new link, and that's the best way to get in there. I advise everybody to get in and uh, have some comments. Uh, one thing I was surprised about, you guys did a lot of coverage over the years on catch and release and the uh, definition of that. And one thing that was not covered in their questionnaire, uh, agree with you, the majority of it is on whether they should double fines or increase penalties and that sort of thing. Less amount of attention paid to uh, areas where a lot of hunters and fishers have concerns, whether it's... Uh, uh, shooting from a road, or what's the different? What's the definition of a road? Yeah, and proximity to dwellings. Be from a road. Yeah, is it the ditch? Uh, a lot of different uh, uh, parts of the regulations uh, require better definitions, along with the uh, catch and release one that you guys have covered on your show quite a bit. Yeah, what people, what they use for mortality rates, you know, whether it could be done properly if you don't play the fish too hard and you don't take it out of the water, all that type of stuff. There was a uh, another consultation just closed a couple of days ago that was on climate change action. Another one regarding the environment uh, closed in December. That was about the uh, WARE Act proposals, protected, the proposed protected areas engagement issue. So, yeah, if you're interested in uh, offering your opinion on the uh, potential amendments to the Wildlife Act and Endangered Species Act and all the applicable regulations, you simply go Google Engage NL, as Tony said, and you're right there. Yep. Another point with that, you can actually send in an email comment if you don't get to the survey part. Uh, one part that does frustrate me, too, as well, there's really no other avenue. It should be a phone number there that people can just call in, and I don't think that's there. I haven't seen it. Uh, well, at least it's not promoted as much, and... Uh, when you're looking at the hunting and trapping community, you're looking at older people that are no longer or not necessarily uh, computer literate, and that would certainly open up uh, more avenues for people to provide input into the, the system. And I certainly applaud a review of it. It's something that should probably happen every five years, and not. Well, I guess it probably hasn't happened in decades. Well, you can uh, send an email. It's an easy one. It's engagenl at gov.nl.ca, the common uh, suffix. Uh, there is a phone number. You can call the division. Okay. They give out the number. It's 709-729-6855. I'm not sure if you can participate just like you can online by calling that number, but they do provide that phone number on the page itself. 
Excellent, Patty. Appreciate that. But uh, yeah, just uh, advise more people to get out and uh, have a look at that survey or call in with your concerns over uh, wildlife regulations and uh, how they can be, uh, I guess, tweaked. And uh, certainly you have your input on what, what's going to come up in the, the new versions, the new gazetted versions of the Wildlife Act and regulations. Appreciate the time, uh, Tony. Stay in touch. Okay, thanks very much, Patty. Appreciate it. My Bye. pleasure. Bye-bye. It's Tony Chubbs, president of the Hunting and Fishing Association in Labrador. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, Patty, and Happy New Year to you and family. Same to you. Thanks, Wayne. I know lots of people uh, are wishing you that, Patty, and I think that's a good thing. You provide invaluable service to the people here. Anyway, Patty, I want to talk to you today again about the continuing war, I guess, in the Middle East and the effect it's having on everybody, not only those people that are suffering the consequences of being bombed, but the whole world's pretty well engaged in this and uh, it's a hell of a mess over there and I don't think it's going to end anytime soon really and there doesn't seem to be much empathy in Israel for the people of Palestine given the murderous activities of their government and their military and it's, it's, it's a shame really it's a, I'm watching it's out of the corner of my eye it's just it's a lot. So death toll somewhere in the neighborhood of 23,000 people uh, at this stage. The number of women and children killed is uh, alarming. And of course, you know, it's hard to have a conversation with th- about these types of things because they're emotional, traumatic, and polarizing. Nobody in their right mind, I would say, is a supporter of Hamas. And I'm talking about on this side of the world. I don't know how many people in Palestine are supporters. And it's fine to say that, well, they voted them in as government, so consequently they must be supportive of. Then we're not talking about free and fair elections like we enjoy in the modernized part of the world. And, of course, they've been in power for 17 years. Half of the population of Gaza is under the age of 18. So, obviously, they did not support a government. They weren't old enough or and or alive to vote. So, if you hear from the IDF leadership and or Netanyahu or senior cabinet ministers, this is not over until it's completely raised. Well, in terms of listening and believing what Netanyahu tells you, uh, there are many people left, I hope, that puts a lot of faith in the truth that he's going to tell because he's been counted out over the years as one of the most successful purveyors of on So I don't listen to him at all. And I Well, you have to listen to him when he says they're going to keep going until they see fit to stop. I mean, even inside of Israel, the polling numbers are quite clear. Uh, Israelis are not fully supportive of Netanyahu and what they're, what they're seeing. The largest newspaper in Israel is condemning him daily. So I'm only going by, I mean, you can only take the man at his word. I'm not talking about death toll and precision bombing and stuff. I'm talking about the fact that he's quite clear. This is not done until they see fit. Yeah, that's about it. And uh, what does that mean? I wonder if he fit. I don't think the destruction of Hamas is the objective at all. I think his real objective is to move everybody, all the Palestinians, off their land so they can occupy it over time. That seems to be the only thing that I see represented in the activity of the military and the government over there. And I, I think and I hope the world is not going to stand for that kind of 
activity. I mean, those people are have just as much a legitimate claim to their land as, as anybody, and why they're undergoing the kind of constant destruction that we're seeing every day is is, is difficult to uh, understand, and is certainly something we can't accept. Now, on top of that, I've noticed the last little while the reporting that there's been uh, an awful lot of international journalists killed in this fighting over there. And that is an unusual circumstance, but it seems to be characteristic of what happens in war zones where the Israeli military is involved. And I'm curious as to why that kind of statistic is, is appearing now. Like, why would journalists be targeted, I wonder? It just seems to be an odd outcome. Well, I, I certainly can't answer that question, but I imagine it has a lot to do with they don't want people reporting what's actually happening on the ground, uh, which again yes, makes exactly it very difficult to follow along because it's really hard to disseminate what's real, what's not, what's accurate, what's purposeful, purposeful disinformation. Like I, I just don't know. Covering and following these things has become more and more difficult because, as we've said, or I've said many times, you know, you can read something and if it lines up with your agenda, even if it's completely 100% false that'll be something you believe because the lie has made its way all around the world before the truth gets out of bed and I think that's never been more appropriate and or accurate given the advent of social media than today Yes, Patty, and that's one of the cons I guess of, of the kind of media coverage we're getting there's no doubt about that but just think of what it would be if we had no media coverage and there were no kind of constraints put on the Israeli military where would we be on that? Uh, the other point I want to make okay. that is there's a request by South Africa for Canada to join this UN petition, I guess, on imposing a ceasefire in that area. And the Prime Minister thus far has been reluctant to uh, to uh, agree with this. And I want to let the Prime Minister know that a ceasefire needs to be imposed pretty well immediately over there. Otherwise... This is going to drag on for months and months and probably longer than that. And at the end of which, I can't see how there could be there can be peace in that area, given the destruction. I don't know, but Canada has called for a ceasefire. Yes, I know. But now South Africa's the country has put forward a proposal for a ceasefire, and Canada seems to be reluctant to sign on to it. And I agree that some time ago the Prime Minister was asking for ceasefire, so why would be reluctant now to participate in this one is a bit of a mystery to me. Yeah, some of that I, does feel like grandstanding to me, though, all the same way, and it's optics versus reality, because the United Nations, there's no one who can impose a ceasefire. A ceasefire would be agreed upon or it wouldn't. As simple as that. It's like all the other things signed at the UN. They're not enforceable. They're not legally bonding. They're just a show of strength, strength in numbers, you know. Uh, <laughs> I think that is, there's really no more than that because people lean on the UN a lot and, you know, talk about Canada should leave the United Nations, which sounds like a really terrible idea. Imagine isolating yourself on purpose. Um, so I don't think, you know, signing on to that's not going to change one bomb, one bullet fired in Gaza, is it? No, I don't. I think you're right on that, Patty, because the further evidence of that is there's 156 UN resolutions on the imposed on Israel. Not one of them have been adhered to over the years, so it seems to be a, a paper tiger in a way, but I think rather than 
disposal of the UN, what we ought to be doing is looking at ways to strengthen it so that when it, there are resolutions passed there, that nations have no choice but to adhere to them. Because, I mean, if 120 nations signs a petition, you know, to to impose on a country for its behavior, you would think that they wouldn't be doing that unless there was a very serious reason to to impose such restrictions. But to ignore them over the years, as Israel had done, continues to do, you have to believe, Patty, that there's some reasonable humanitarian reason behind these petitions. Not people just devising little plans, you know, for grandstanding purposes or something to have no effect. And certainly in in that area over there now, there's certainly reason for imposing some restrictions on what's going on. And I think the whole world needs to get behind it. And Canada should get behind the one that the uh, South African country is putting forward. Any any resolution over there that can impose a restriction or ceasefires on what's going on is... I think we should be a little bit wary of having uh, international bodies take away some sovereign responsibility and authority and lawmaking. And inside this world of Israel, there's a reason I don't talk a whole lot about it, because the history is long and tumultuous. You know, things changed dramatically in 1967 at the end of the Arab-Israeli War, the Six-Day War. And of course, we're talking about cultural differences that are so incredibly ingrained. Even the way children are taught in both sides, Israel and in Gaza, just contribute something that I personally can't absolutely 100% wrap, wrap my mind around. So I just think it's so complicated beyond what happened on October the 7th and uh, Hamas and their terrorist action. That's where many people's thoughts of or, or understanding of the two cultures and Gaza and Israel, that's where the, it all starts for them. But of course, that's decades, maybe centuries uh, uh, after this complicated issue has raised its head. I don't know if it ever gets settled or solved. People have been talking about two-state solution and you know, simply the optics of moving the American embassy to Jerusalem and all those things. Has it made a raw beans difference? Obviously not. So I'm, I'm absolutely going to say categorically I don't have enough working knowledge of the historical relationship, the standoffs, whether it be from 1967 on, I think it's as complicated and as as ingrained into the culture, the thought, the psyche of both sides of this war. And talk about the unfairness in strength. I mean, Canada, the United States, many other countries, we are involved. We're involved. We have been supporters of, whether it be humanitarian aid into that very small strip of land in Gaza and or militarily speaking when it comes to Israel and the IDF. So, again, I'll leave it at that and I'll give you the final thoughts before we say goodbye. Yes, Betty, I agree with your, your commentary there, but I think uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations had a right when he said this war didn't start on October 7th, that the, the prelude to it has been going on for the last 50 years. Yeah, the iteration of this war started on the 7th, but that's just an iteration. It's not the beginning of anything. Yes, but in terms of ending it, I mean, to think that it's been going on for hundreds of years is a bit bizarre, bizarre, and to consider that it'll go on for hundreds of more years is even more bizarre. I mean, we do have intelligent people on both sides of this, and, and to believe that, well, there's no end to this. We'll keep fighting wars forever and never, amen. I mean, that does, just does not sound like a, a an intelligent human assessment of us. 
somebody has got to eventually come to the conclusion that we're only going around in circles, killing each other, and our nations are going nowhere. I appreciate the time, Wayne. And it's not just there. I mean, Yemen and Libya, many African countries, I mean, the world is really a bit of a tinderbox. Uh, I have to get to the break, Wayne, but I appreciate your time. Yes, Patty, I appreciate your time. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Uh, you too. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Paul's in the queue to talk about a city bylaw, which one we'll figure that out after the break. We'll talk about the medical transportation assistance program, enhancements or improvements, and Doug wants to talk about price gouging. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you there? Uh, I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm okay. A little tired, just getting up, but I'm okay. I wish you'd do your show later in the day. I'd call in all the time. Well, we replay it at <laughs> night, and you can get it on our website throughout the course of the afternoon. Dave posted really like earlier mid-afternoon. Right on, right on. Okay, that's great. Uh, I was listening to your last two callers, and uh, it's funny that I ca- I'm calling in about a wildlife issue, well, uh, an animal issue, when your second last caller was concerned with the wildlife and the rabbits uh, uh, trapping and such. So I guess it's appropriate for uh, to keep it on theme for wildlife. Uh, you know, I'd like to say something about the Middle East, but uh, I'm not going to distract the issue that I have. Um, let me see. I've written. I've uh, been um, fined by city council, or they they are tr- they are pulling me into court to try to find me for feeding birds on public sidewalks. Now I've been, uh, uh, you know, in. Uh, in communication with city council over the past four years over this issue. Um, at first, they were trying to get me to stop feeding them from my home. And uh, after much conflict with them, after about a year and a half, I, I, I went along with it and I stopped. And that was a couple of years ago. Since that time, um, at the advice of Sheila, the deputy Murray, the deputy mayor, I spoke with her for about a half an hour on the phone. She recommended I stop feeding them from the house and just feed them in the areas that they normally congregate in the in the town down by the bus stop, so on and so on. She just said, take it away from your door, feed them outside, away from your place. That's what I've been doing for two years. Now, I've had some people in the neighborhood take, uh, making complaints about this. Not a lot. Most people are in favor of the birds and love them. But uh, there are a few people that don't like birds. I think that's uh, some kind of a psychological uh, disorder, really. Um, but uh, be that it is may. Some people are I afraid of birds. Public... What's that? Some people are just afraid of birds. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people watch too much Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, they're just misinformed about what, what the animals are. And it's also going to be considered that we have a large population of people here in, in St. John's that are immigrants, newly immigrated to the city. And uh, not to say where they're from. Some are from Canada, some are from Africa, some are from India. They're from all over the world. But people that are from other locations that do not have doves may not know that they're totally harmless to people and property, and uh, they're just a beautiful animal. The people of city, the, in the city of St. John's have always adored and cherished them, just as they do in the Vatican and at the, in Paris and New York. Uh, they're, they're a lovely animal. And uh, I was wondering, I, I wrote a, uh, an open letter to the mayor. I sent it to pretty much every head of uh, government in all envi- departments of environment, humane services. I sent it to the police. I sent it to, I'm putting it on car windows. It's only, uh, it'll only take me about two minutes to read it, if you would allow me to read it. Just a couple of things. So the issue regarding bird feeders, whether it be hanging from a tree in your backyard and or feeding from hand like you do, is there's a variety of concerns that people talk about. One is rodents, uh, which is a massive one. We're the most rat-infested city in the country, apparently. So it's rodents. Okay, okay. Can, I, can I pause you on that? No, you can't. I'm from, down, I'm from St. John's all my life. Uh, all my family is my, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. I am a true townie. 
Okay, I have lived away for seven years of my life. I am 54 years old now. I have been living in this city for close to a half a century in the downtown area. Okay. I have never had a problem with rodents in any place I have lived in downtown St. John's. I've been living in my apartment here on Pennywell Road, close to Chess's and the areas where there's supposed to be an infestation problem. I have seen one rat in the entire time. All of my neighbors are up in arms wondering what everybody is talking about this rodent situation. There is a rodent situation. There is a rodent problem. We have a uh, couple of companies that are, they're Canadian companies that are trying to make a startup. They're uh, terminators, you know, exterminators, rat catchers. And people might notice that these guys are driving around with their trucks painted bird management. Where does a rat catcher have to do with managing our bird population? Rats will go where they there. can feed and drink. Right. Well, yeah, but you see, again, I'm just contesting the idea that there is a rat infestation problem in St. John's. I, I mean, I have never seen there a is. rat walking. Okay, I actually, I'll be honest with you, yesterday when I was walking through the intersection in front of uh, Jackman and Green's there, I did pass over a dead rat. Mm-hmm. And I believe that these rat-catching companies are releasing the poor animals on the street, trying to create an industry here. Okay, I'm not, I don't create... know about that. Uh, anyway. Okay, well, I believe this is what I suspect. Okay. Okay. I have no proof of that, but this is what it appears to so me. Bird feeders... I've never seen a rodent problem in St. John's. Well, I have. Uh, bird feeders and rodents. And then there's the issue regarding frounce, which is, uh, certainly impacts birds' ability to eat and swallow. That happens where they feed, when they exchange, mm-hmm. you know, where there's some of their feces, what have you. Then there's the issue of the avian flu. So there's a variety of contributing factors as to why people are not as interested in backyard feeders as they were in the past and some of the city restrictions that have been imposed. Okay, Scott, can I just make a comment on the avian flu? Uh, If you would allow me to read my letter, it does address those issues, and it only takes two minutes to read it. Two minutes maximum, Cole. Yep, okay. Dear Mr. Mayor, pursuant to my telephone conversation with your assistant, Stacy, as well as several senior members of city council, I am writing to inform you the new city bird feeding prohibition is in conflict with Canadian federal wildlife laws, specifically regarding doves, pigeons. I've been advised by several different officials with Wild Canada Wildlife, provincial and federal, that doves are classified as domestic animals by federal law, and therefore no law preventing the feeding of these animals may be upheld by any Canadian court. Doves are not migratory and depend exclusively on humans for food. They have no natural food supply. This bylaw must, can therefore only result in their slow starvation and eventual mass demise. This is clearly not humane, and itself conflicts with federal and provincial laws preventing cruelty and neglect to animals, i.e. starvation. Please know that avian flu is not harmful to humans. With only around 600 cases in all recorded medical history, it is considered effectively harmless to humans, according to the head veterinarian for Canada Wildlife Newfoundland, Beverly, and the Rock Wildlife Rescue, Karen. Doves have neither tooth nor claw and are not able to harm humans or property. Dove guano is not corrosive. It is, in fact, an excellent preservative and fertilizer, which is perfectly water, rain, soluble, and odorless. Normally healthy, well-fed doves are not commonly known to spread disease. Last bit here. London, New York, the Vatican, Paris, as well as many of the great tourist cities in the world very much cherish and enjoy their dove populations. Please allow us to enjoy ours as, as we have customarily have for centuries. We are very lucky to have such a beautiful species native to our city. They are the symbol of Christianity and Jesus Christ himself, after all. The doves in my neighborhood, city center, are obviously suffering very badly. 
it is, in fact, the worst case of willful animal cruelty and neglect I have witnessed. Truly disgraceful. Please, in the name of St. Francis and in the fondest animal-loving memory of Andy Wells, take action on this matter immediately. If you'd like to discuss the story, uh, so on, so on. Sure. So you're talking about pigeons, right? Yes, doves. Yeah, pigeons. Pigeons are doves. Well, they're in the same family. Dove is a a slang term. I'm just trying to be very specific. And avian flu might not have a direct impact on many human beings, but it certainly has an impact on the bird population that you so cherish. And, you know, I've been been, uh, taking, I've started an informal Save the Birds group in my neighborhood in the past uh, few years called City Wings. And I can tell you that uh, none of my members have seen a sick bird. Okay. Not uh, one. Not one. They're we, not exactly the swallows of Capistrano. We have orders to all of our members to report a sick bird. That's the first thing we're looking for. We okay. have not witnessed one. I appreciate the time, Paul. Let me know if you make any headway with the city. I appreciate your time, Patty. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller who wants to talk about hotel costs, and we're going to talk about the medical transportation assistance program, what the government calls improvements. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, just heard the release this morning about the MTAP program for people traveling out of province for medical. Yep. I uh, just wanted to let everybody know there it's under no circumstances do you ever get $175 a night for a hotel. There's a lot of factors in play and people might not understand that. Such as? Uh, well, when you submit your claim, uh, when you come back, I don't know if it's the same now, but when you uh, go away and you submit your claim, anything under $3,000, you get 50%. Anything above three thousand dollars, like say if you spent four, you'll get fifty percent of the three, and seventy-five percent of the thousand for to make up the four. So at no point do you ever get one hundred and seventy-five dollars. If you spend say two thousand dollars, you get fifty percent of your hotel. Okay, I appreciate the clarification. I'm not sure if that's the case anymore, but I'll I'll make sure and I'll follow up. Yes, it is, actually, because I wanted to call them before I did, because a lot of people don't understand the program, and I didn't want them thinking, like, if they're sick and going out of the province, like, they get 175 And it's not just for the hotel room. It's for it's so much towards your airfare, and, like, it goes under certain uh, rules. So it's not – under no circumstances do they ever give you 175 It's a good program, but, I mean, it's not like it seems, because – you don't get $175 for a hotel room. If you spend less than 3000 you get half that $175 when you come back. Okay. So I just wanted to clarify that for people who don't understand. I appreciate it. They do indeed include the caps and eligibility of uh, flight reimbursements and that type of thing. So, for instance, so uh, $1,000 toward the cost of the first eligible flight, 75% for additional airfare costs between $1,000 and $8,000, and 85% of costs greater than $8,000 incurred over the course of a year. They also go on to talk about uh, kilometer per diems, or pardon me, the kilometer charge, 20 to, goes from $0.20 cents to $0.25 cents per kilometer for patients who drive more than 4,000 kilometers during a 12-month period. So they have Indeed, included some of the thresholds in this new improvement announcement. 
Mm-hmm. And and the, the kilometers, like if you're traveling, say from Central Newfoundland, and you got to fly out of St. John's, because as you know, airfare from Gander is pretty expensive. So if you're trying to save a bit of money and fly out of St. John's, even if you're having so serious thing as brain surgery out of the province, and you come back, if you get in two o'clock in the morning, you're not allowed to stay in a hotel um, in St. John's and claim your travel. Like you got to, uh, they want compensate you for that because you got to come right home there's nothing for anything like that because you're expected to fly it again or no matter what the cost so it, it's pretty sticky like it, you got to have your facts straight is not not as it seems i don't think and like i said it is a good program it do help but i think they should word it a bit different when they're uh, when they're telling people about it i appreciate the information uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. We'll see if we can get uh, some thoughts coming from the NDP member for Lab West on exactly that when we join Jordan Brown on Line 5. Jordan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. Yes, no, and I just said I've seen the announcement, and it's interesting that I said your previous caller there uh, talking about MTAP and, you know, the wording and stuff, and like a lot of constituents that come to my office, I tell them the MTAP program is clear as mud because it is so complicated and there's so much bureaucracy and there's so many hoops that people got to jump through just to even get their money back or to apply up front, um, even with all the, I guess, uh, you know, quote-unquote adjustments and, and improvements. Um, I'm getting more and more calls to my office every day about, uh, you know, some of the wording, some of the changes that they made and people just getting so frustrated trying to get their money back for traveling for medical especially medical uh, procedures that are just not available here in Labrador so the thresholds as articulated by the caller is that the case uh, in some cases, yeah, there is, seems to be some tweaks made in the latest adjustment to uh, to that. But for the most part, yes, that that's that's how they uh, they seem to operate. Um, there's no forgiveness. There's no uh, you know uh, understanding of local uh, you know. Like, you know, like the caller said, it's easier from the fly out of province, out of St. John's than it is Gander, which is in relative fact, yes, that's that's the best way. If you want to leave this province, the best gateway out of this province is, is St. John's International Airport, unfortunately. Um, well, that's the case regardless of its medical transportation or not. I know, but uh, but the way the um, MTAP looks at it, it goes, no, you should have left from Gander. Oh, we can't, we're going to reject all your claim. You should have left from Gander. That's how they, they seem to operate. That's a lot of frustration that my residents here in Love West have been feeling, even with this program, even with the changes and the new upfront program. Yes. On paper, it looks good, but in practice and how they're actually operating the program, I have still have a lot of concerns on, and a lot of frustrations on how this is operating. Um, I have residents here who are trying to get the documentation to apply for the program, and sometimes they just can't get the, 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 the silly letters and stuff from the medical professionals to even apply. I've had a case where recently where someone had to go out for an emergency MRI and the booking office for the MRI said, well, we, we, the only way we can get you your proof of MRI is to send it in the mail. We can't, we can't email it to you. And she said, well, this, by the time I get to the mail, I'll be in St. John's, have my MRI and back again before the actual proof that she had to have this MRI was going to be in the mail for her from the booking office. And MTAP was just like, well, we, we need this letter. And there was no way that the, poor, the lady at the booking office said, the way the system is set up, I have to send it in the mail. And thankfully, the doctor that booked the MRI was able to provide proof for her to actually get her uh, to get her uh, her ticket. But this is the kind of thing that, you know, there's such a big disconnect between the program, MTAP program, and how 
the healthcare system is currently operating and the letters that MTAP are asking people to provide, there's just not enough staff in the healthcare system to provide this, this letter. So people are going out of pocket for things that are actually covered under MTAP, but they can't get it because there's just no way of getting these, these silly letters. What, what specific letters are we talking about, Jordan? Sorry. Okay, so in order to apply for MTAP, you have to have proof of you have, a, you have an appointment. And sometimes appointments are booked literally three or four days before you actually have them. So you have to have proof you have an appointment signed by a doctor or, or the booking office. And that's difficult? It is very difficult to get, actually, for in most cases. A lot of my, my uh, residents actually have a hard time getting these letters <laughs> or get them in time because sometimes they're sent in the mail and their appointment is before the mail will even show up here in Labrador. So that's one thing. Then they have to get there and they have to actually get letters signed by the doctor. Can't be signed by a nurse practitioner. Can't be signed by the clerk in the office. Have to be signed by the doctor. Sometimes the doctor is just not available to sign these letters for people. So then they're out this money because the doctor just wasn't available to sign it. He can't have his clerk sign the letter, can't have the nurse practitioner that works in his office or a nurse that works in his office sign these letters on their on his behalf. It has to be signed by the doctor. And this is also causing a massive amount of headache for my residents when they come back and realize the letter that was signed by the clerk at the office was just no good. And so this is the this is the kind of foolishness that we're seeing with the MTAP program day in and day out. And these people are constantly coming to my office telling me, Jordan, I want to use MTAP, but this I just can't get this letter from this doctor because he was just so busy. And his clerk signed the letter for me, and it's useless. It was not even worth the paper it was written on. What do we know about the rationale for it to have to be the doctor, not the nurse practitioner and or receptionist or administrative staff? Is it the worry that someone may indeed have forged documents because the doctors can be held to account and they're registered with the province? So what do you think the issue is there? I'm not sure. I can never get a clear answer from MTAP. It's just a lot of dancing around, it seems. No one really has why this is reason. No one's ever actually been able to tell me straight why this is it. I've argued with MTAP constantly about this, saying, you know, you're just holding up people. You're holding up people who are entitled to their uh, to their MTAP, and they just they say this is this is it. This is what we're doing. And I find it very disappointing on some of the answers I've received back from them. At the same time, you know. We're, we don't have enough healthcare professionals as it is the province, and we're just going to burden them with administrative stuff like this is just ludicrous in itself. And yes, you can help hold the doctor accountable, but these are also people that actually work in, you know, well, what's, uh, you know, Newfoundland Labor Health Services now, whatever they want to call themselves. Um, they work here in the system now. Shouldn't they be held accountable anyway because they work in the healthcare system? If there's, if there's, you know, quote unquote forgery or anything like that, you know, we're, we're talking about people getting getting healthcare they need. And if we keep throwing off these financial burdens in front of people, we just we're no we're no better than the Americans then when it comes to healthcare. Then obviously, if we have to pay pay to go get retrieve healthcare, it doesn't matter if you pay up front or pay through uh, travel. We're, we're we're no better then because then obviously people who can afford airfare or ones who get healthcare and those who can't afford airfare obviously got to sit here and suffer. So this is where you know. When I was campaigning in 2021 and in 2019, I was saying, if someone calls you and says, Jordan, you need to be in St. John's for this procedure on Monday, and you say, okay, I mean, here, here's your reference number for your MTAP. If it, if it, that, that would be the simplest way to do it. But instead, we put all these you know, administrative burdens and making, you know, basically patients and people who are sick and trying to retrieve people or make them turn them into, you know, you know, running around town trying to get letters and notes and sign off on this and sign off on that. You just made their life 10 times worse. Yeah, it's one thing to talk about increased financial support, quite another to deal with some of the nuisance related matters, as you describe. 
Well, that's what it is. And, and yes, financial was one part of it. And still, even if you know we didn't have the financial part of it, they still never corrected. Actually, if anything, they've added more bureaucratic and administrative burden to the program. And now you have people running around town trying to get these letters and these notes and these things like that. And they're up against barriers because we have issues with our healthcare system where we just can't get these letters and notes and things signed off because obviously the healthcare professionals are so busy just trying to provide healthcare that we have this administrative burden that's thrown on top of them. And then obviously they have, you know, they have clerks and secretaries and, and nurse practitioners and stuff helping their clinics that could obviously say, yes, Katie was here for her appointment. Here we go. Here's my signature and my date and my time on the note. Yes, you signed. You can send this to MTAP now. But instead, MTAP takes that and automatically just rejects it. Uh, government. Oh, agreed. <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunate. Uh, anything else that you wanted to uh, talk about? Because I see uh, you see in the subject line as well. Oh, yeah. So um, I know that uh, uh, when I, I was driving into my office this morning, I heard your uh, preamble talking about um, Gull Island and Lower Churchill and Upper Churchill and stuff. And I just wanted to you know, bring back up the point there, um, your, your discussion about it. But there's one thing that you could talk We talk about Hydro-Quebec and stuff that need. But there's also a massive need for electricity in Labrador itself for the industrial needs. Sure. And obviously, yes, we can go make deals and stuff. And, we t- and I've seen that, you know, um, former Premier Grimes talked about, you know, his deal that he worked on and stuff. But one thing that keeps being missed out is that there has, there is no block. We're not talking about the province is not talking about it, and I know the media is not talking about it. It's the block of power that is required for the industrial growth of Labrador. Right now, I do not have enough power in Labrador West for the industri- the potential industrial growth that you know the mining companies in the sector want to keep uh, to move forward. I have, I, I'm, we're capped out. Um, you know, the, the the transfer yard here is maxed out during the winter. We do not have enough electricity to grow any bigger. No, there's nothing and to say that any expansion of hydro on the Grand River can't include a block of power for Labrador and a heavy industry expansion because the reality now, given some of the changes in mining and exploration and the thirst for critical minerals and otherwise, there's going to be need. There's absolutely going to be need for heavy industry to be powered by hydro. Now, back in 2002, it was a different uh, set of circumstances where, you know, keeping the power in Labrador for that purpose really didn't pan out, nor was there the, the type of demand but that's changed dramatically so there's I agree 100% if we're going to see domestic use some of that is going to be expand industrial opportunities no, no doubt about it uh, absolutely so in, 2020, in 2002 it actually was discussed in uh, Grimes deal and it was actually brought up about block power for uh, Labrador it was actually it, it was discussed then at the time, um, but it was kind of put to one side, and it actually did cause problems down the road uh, for uh, potential that we actually lost. Uh, there was talks about aluminum smelting in Labrador West. There was talks about uh, jet engine testing in Labrador West, and all those pro- all those proposals went sideways because there was just not enough power. And then we talk about uh, this time around. Actually, in the French media, Legault actually said, when in some of his discussions talking about power for Quebec, he actually said that the uh, Labrador trough was actually competing against Quebec in the sense that that they needed power just for themselves compared to what was needed for the rest of Quebec. So it actually, Legault was actually even also worried about um, losing some block power to industrial, uh, industrial Labrador. So he actually sees us as a competitor for his own interests. So right now, if you want to look at uh, this thing, when we're talking about it, Labrador has a great, a great potential, and especially Labrador West right now. We are seeing iron ore prices like we've never seen, and they are staying consistently high for the last four, uh, three years. Actually, as of today, um, we're at a three a three year high um, for uh, for iron ore sales and pricing wise. So really, you know, when we're talking the discussion. 
Quebec is a second fiddle, in my opinion. Right of, now, we should course. be talking. The main, the, main, the main thing we talk about is our own internal needs. So just as the Labrador West, but you also have to look at right now the reliability on the island. There's also a need on the island for actually power to be built and distributed on the island itself. Because also, thankfully enough, even the island uh, portion of the province is seeing some growth and actually seeing some uh, there that they also do need uh, electricity. So right now, we all talk about selling to Quebec. I know Quebec will be a great market for sale, but, we have, but, but first and foremost is we have to talk about ourselves first. Yeah, well, I mean, Newfoundland. That's, that's, where the, that's where I've seen the conversation is not going. Hydro, well, we've been talking about hydro's evaluation of supply and demand uh, requirements in the forecast anyway. And, you know, there's unfortunately... And for many people, they hate hearing this, but we're going to have to do this type of business with the province of Quebec come hell or high water. The fact of the matter is, there's no such thing as heavy industry expansion in Labrador that could justify an additional 2,225 megawatts of power at Gull, right? And things have changed for Legault. You know, we could be in the competitive nature, but the fact of the matter is, once again, 15% of uh, Hydro-Quebec's portfolio is the Upper Churchill. It contributes to everything, not only their revenue side and their customer base and the ability to expand, it also deals directly with the equalization formula. So we do indeed have some arrows in our quiver that we haven't in the past necessarily, but you can't develop golf for Labrador. You have to develop golf for a wide expanse of power purchase agreement with major consumers. There's three projects that was in the 2002 uh, you know, draft agreement. There was also Churchill 2. Churchill 2 was an, an expansion to the current Churchill Falls project. It was about 1,000 megawatts. Right now, uh, you look at that, so that's, that was one. Then it was also Gall Island, and then it was Muskrat Falls. And these were actually known projects even back in the uh, early 60s. Of course. Uh, yeah, so even the 60s, uh, in, in the Smallwood Reservoir, uh, Smallwood, um, government went up and down Labrador and, and surveyed every single river that was possible for uh, hydro developments. They went on a whole adventure on that one. Um, Churchill 2 was always the, was supposed to be the first project. Then it was Gull Island, and then it was supposed to be Muskrat Falls. Churchill 2 uh, was about 1,000 megawatts, and the idea of that one was that was supposed to secure um, industrial um, power for expansion. It's about 1,000 megawatts. Right now, if you take into account everything that we're, what's going on in Labrador West, 1,000 megawatts won't even cut it right now for everything that's being talked about right now. Every single project, you know, we had the Golden Goose, every single project that was talked about Lab West, whatever it had, it still exceeds 1,000 megawatts. And then the proponents want to pay for some of that transmission, like Alderaan putting the entire bill on us. The reason why that didn't get off the ground. I uh, appreciate the time, Jordan. I'm late for the break. Thanks for this. No worries. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. Too, bye-bye. The issue with MTAP and having good letters and whatnot, uh, you're right. You can get a referral to a specialist, eventually get a letter in the mail that has been accepted with a time and date. But if you have a specialist appointment agreed upon and scheduled, you know, in healthcare, we're still relying on things like a fax machine. Can we not have an administrative support staffer send an email to NTAP, CCing the doctor responsible on both ends, the GP and or the specialist, just to get these things accommodated? You know, it seems to me that we allow for roadblocks to be in place without trying to come up with any way around them. I mean, and that's the kind of nature of the beast for government. But, of course, expanding financial incentive, pardon me, or financial supports isn't the be-all and end-all. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning. You're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Hi. Um, I'm just calling, actually, with um, just I want to make people aware in light of a situation that we just recently went through that we were not aware of and I thought that we should have been. Uh, and I know there's been a lot of talk recently in the news with the personal home cares and their hiking rates and whatnot. But anyway, um, just recently we lost our mom in a personal home care. 
she had been there for a week and a half when she passed um went there because she had uh, mobile issues mobility issues with her legs but anyway a week and a half later she had passed and so when we arrived at the home um she was on the floor eyes open uh and the worker was kind of standing over her and no paramedics nobody was at the scene when we got there um she uh, when the paramedics did arrive they were quite perturbed that CPR was not performed, um, and I just assumed CPR was performed, but it wasn't. Uh, so, sometime later, you know, I took it upon myself to do some investigation because I thought, you know, why wasn't CPR performed? Would she still be here today had it been performed? I don't know that, but I have, I have to live with that. So I just want people to know, I want Newfoundland Labrador, you know, to be aware that uh, in the event that they have loved ones or there are loved ones going into these personal home cares, that it is not, it is not, and I say that straight from the horse's mouth, it is not an operational requirement for workers to have CPR. First off, uh, I'm sorry to hear of your loss. My condolences. Thank you very much. Inside, so when you say personal home care workers, I mean, there'd be lots of different type of workers working in those types of facilities. But if, for instance, if you get a diploma in personal care from, say, the College of the North Atlantic, it does include uh, basic first, train, uh, first aid training, which includes CPR. So are you talking about, like, maintenance staff or housekeeping or dietary? Because the PCAs, they're absolutely supposed to have, if they have a diploma in hand, they're absolutely supposed to have standard first aid. I think I think there there is the issue uh, that they're not hiring CP PCAs. Uh, uh, they're hiring uh, people off the street, and uh, and that, and that's perfectly that that's perfectly legit. They can do that, and CPR is not a requirement for that. Yeah, because you can't graduate from one of these official training programs without standard first aid. The no, very you basics, can. you and know, CPR and what people call the Heimlich maneuver, mm-hmm. which is, of course, abdominal thrust. Apparently, we're not right. allowed to say Heimlich anymore. Uh, right. Dealing with basic mental health uh, crises and all sorts of breathing restrictions and solutions for and what they call uh, the, 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 the check call care is also mm-hmm. part of standard first aid. So I'm Your basic life saving skills, basic stuff, absolutely basic stuff. I'm really surprised to hear this. I did not know because I do know that in a formalized, trained PCA, standard first aid is just bare bones part of it. You can't even graduate without it. So no. I'll follow up with the the department responsible because that makes very little sense. I mean, there's jobs that I've had in the past that first aid was a requirement, and we had very little to do with it. When I worked well, in the hotel I, I industry mean, in Alberta. In my career for the last 30 years, and in order for me to upkeep my license, I have to be CPR certified. And, I mean, as you are aware, CPR can go beyond two years, but it doesn't matter. In order for me to keep up with my license, I have to get recertified every two years regardless. Yeah, and like when I worked in the hotel industry, I'd have a first aid upgraded all the time or, or updated all the time, and I very seldom came across anything that required my knowledge of first aid. So you're right. For me to have to have it working in the hotel versus someone working in a facility with people who may indeed be frail, elderly or otherwise, it's, and that's that, and alarming. That was, that was, uh, that's what kind of made me uh, want to bring it to everybody's attention because you just assume, I mean, had we been informed, okay, we... You know, your loved one is going in such and such a home, but 
you have to remember that it is not CPR, a requirement for CPR. So basic, should my mom or any loved one need basic life-saving skills, they're not available. Now, that's not for all homes. That's up to the individual homes. Sure. You know, I mean, we even put defibrillators on the walls of hockey rinks. Homes, I mean, to yeah. me, causes great concern. Uh, you know, if if... If it's up to the individual homes, then I think the family, the loved one, and the families of the loved one should be informed that, hey, you know, your loved one is going here, but these this basic, life-based, uh, safe, basic skills are not available. And it's very, very upsetting to, to know that, that we were not informed, and that is not regulated. Well, I will follow up on this one because this is quite strange. Uh, and I will add to it, not only should you be informed, but maybe your call today is going to promote people thinking about the eventuality of their loved ones going into a care home and ask the question directly, does your staff have first aid training? You know? Exactly. Well, my my, uh, I had a cousin who's got loved ones in homes, and and I made him aware of it, and and he, he he his eyes were like on his cheeks. He said, "I was not aware of that," and I said, "Nobody would be. Everybody assumes you're going into a personal home care that these these things are provided and are available, but obviously through our our you know heartache and and our experience that we found out that that is not so, which is very very upsetting because I wonder today if CPR had been performed and available, would she still be here? I don't know that, but I live with that every night, every day. I'm sure you do. I can only imagine the the sadness and frustration. I really appreciate your time, and I will 100% follow up. Thank you very much, and I just want to make everybody aware, you know, ask the questions. Take good care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. A sad tale. Imagine having to live with that, wondering just if the staffer had basic CPR training that maybe, just maybe, things would be different. We'll follow up on that one, for sure, because that makes no sense. So, number one, should it be regulated? The answer to that, in my opinion, is of course, yes. Number two, if you are indeed in the circumstance where you're going to be putting your loved one in a personal care home because their needs have changed, mobility concerns or otherwise, it's a pretty important piece of information to get. So for the homes, please consider offering that uh, piece of information. And if you don't get it offered, by the owner-operator of the home, ask the question. Boy, oh boy, that's something else. I will, and I've said this many times in the past. Basic first aid should be absolutely part of going to school. You know, it's one thing to sign up with St. John Ambulance or the Red Cross and get basic uh, uh, first aid training, but we should be talking about these types of things in school. There's someone who sends me uh, tweets all the time about this type of stuff in school. Let me see if I can find it. It was just sent me one yesterday. And it's uh, uh, Tyrone Power. And this is at Holy Cross Elementary. They had finally all the grades, four, fives, and sixes, approximately 130 kids trained in EpiPen use. But they've all done all kinds of first aid for level ones and two, choking and how an AED machine works, you know, teaching babysitting courses. It should be 100% part of going to school and learning these potential life-saving techniques. Let's take a break. When we come back to the end, let's talk about an eating disorder. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Deanne, you're on the air. Hi, how are you this morning? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, I'm okay. Um, I actually spoke with you months ago um, about a friend of mine, Erica, who had fallen through cracks with the eating disorder 
program and system here in Newfoundland, or there in Newfoundland. I'm in Ontario now. Um, but I wanted to call to give an update. Um, I was talking to her yesterday, and we thought it might be a good time to do that. Um, she's basically now in the hospital on an NG tube. Um, we fought for um, funding for her to go away again for treatment, and by the time we got the go-ahead, um, her BMI had dropped to a point where no treatment center in Canada would take her. And so that would be your body mass index? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it, it has to be 15 in order to get into a treatment program in Canada. Um, and hers had dropped below that by the time we were able to get a go-ahead. We were fighting for months, and, and we got the go-ahead, but it was too late for that. So then we fought for um, funding um, for her to go to the States to a treatment program because that is the only option left. Um, and uh, that was a long fight as well, and we, we have gotten the go-ahead. However, now she's so sick um, medically that she can't travel. Um, so she is in the hospital currently um, on NG feeds, um, and they are trying to get her to a level of medical stability where she can travel to the States to get that treatment. Um, yeah, so I, I, we, we thought it was a good time to update you guys on it uh, because the Eating Disorder Foundation released a message on Facebook um, the other day, a message of hope for 2024. And I mean, the Eating Disorder Foundation is an amazing foundation and that they do wonderful work. But there were statements in that message um, about how successful and how great our eating disorder programs are with Eastern Health now. And Erica actually shared that on Facebook it with a with a post to clarify that that's actually inaccurate and that the success that they talk about is based on um, a small subset of people who suffer from eating disorders who are not life-threatening, who are not long-term sufferers, um, and the people who aren't helped and who are asked to leave the program aren't followed up with and are not included in those numbers. So we just thought, you know, yeah, now will be a good time to update, you know, because I'm super proud of Erica. She's the fact that she's still with us is, is a testament to how much she's fighting. Um, and she's still fighting and she's determined and she says she's going to recover loudly so that um, other people hopefully don't fall through the same cracks. Um, she actually hoped to call in herself, but right now she can't hold a conversation without getting short of breath. So I told her I would do that for her. So. I'm glad you're doing it, Deanne. So uh, just so I can keep up with the acronyms, I, I try to keep them straight. So we, we already spoke to BMI, which is the body mass index, which is a, a fairly misleading uh, measurement anyway. Then you said NG. So that's like nasogastric, like we feed babies formula. Is that uh, what that yeah, is? It's, it's, it's a tube going from her nose into her stomach, yeah. Just to refresh my memory, I'm glad she's getting the help she's getting, albeit quite ill at this stage. 
what was the concern here? Because I'm pretty sure the Eating Disorder Foundation heard our conversation, and I think we tried to connect you with them, or we did connect you with them. So what was the problem here? Oh, <laughs> the problem was Erica went to Homewood um, a year ago, which is an eating disorder treatment program in Ontario. Um, she graduated and came home and went back to the HOPE program for follow-up. Um, and they didn't feel she was where she should be um, in her recovery, and they told her that, and basically um, they told her they didn't feel the program was a fit for her, um, and she had to leave. And because of the wait lists and the lack of outpatient services here, um, for example, all of the specialists with eating disorders, for the most part, are at the HOPE program. So if you're not in the whole program, you can't access them. Um, and there's an outpatient dietitian, a, one of the, one outpatient dietitian who does eating disorder work, but her wait list is so long, um, and psychologists that her wait list is so long that they actually told Erica they couldn't even refer her because the wait list was closed. So she was let go from the whole program with no additional follow-up support, and she spiraled. Is what happened. Well, I appreciate the update this morning, Deanne, and hopefully she recovers loudly, I think is the word you used when uh, speaking with your friend. Would you like to say anything else this morning? Uh, no, just uh, just wanted to thank you for hearing us and for letting us get the message out there, and uh, I hope the conversation continues because things certainly need to change. I hope, I pray to God, Erica does come through, and I pray to God no one else ever has to fall through these cracks because it's uh, a nightmare. I'm with you, and I appreciate the time and the update. Thanks, Deanne. Okay. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Oh, boy. Uh, Very quickly before we get to the break, in this regarding... The interesting, albeit troubling, call from a caller talking about the passing of her mother and the lack of CPR training for staff at the personal care home that she was in. This from a listener. Listening to your show this morning regarding the requirement for first aid COR AED training. Unfortunately, the OH&S, Occupational Health and Safety, first aid regulations that require first aid training are dependent on the number of workers at the job site, not the customer, students, or seniors in a facility. What? There are no regulations requiring AED training, but this is included in all first aid training today. I mean, come on. So if rules are changed to make things easier for private operations and we remove the very fundamentals, the basics, the necessities of when people are in a care facility, that should be the giveaway, the care. It's hard to offer care if you don't have the very basic trainings for people who may indeed be frail, elderly or otherwise. So again... Some of these things just make absolutely no sense. What does it have anything to do with the number of workers versus the clientele, the number of customers, students, uh, residents, personal care homes, or otherwise? So, anyway, we will do the required follow-up on that one. Let's take a break. When we come back, affordable housing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to one of the candidates running in the upcoming by-election ward four in the city of St. John's. That's Tom Davis. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I want to touch on a couple of things before we get into the housing that I call about. A couple of things. Uh, First thing, Newfoundland Health Services actually on Monday put out a tender for uh, autonomous robots. And just before um, Christmas on the 23rd, the Premier announced that we're investing $550,000 into SIFMED, which is a, a platform that uses a combination of AI and machine learning to access health 
to assess health issues and identify uh, potential health risks. So the world is changing and it seems like Newfoundland Labrador is kind of getting in lockstep with the technology and the ways it can help. I think until uh, artificial intelligence is much more reliable, we should all be very hesitant to include it in too many uh, facets of our life. Well, I mean, the big thing is if if you feed real information into it, i.e. people's health records, and um, and then you say look for, you know, look for patterns or look for issues, this company, SIFMED, is already providing some services to um, insurance companies to help with uh, – uh, like liability claims and all that stuff. It, it makes sense to me that to use the, the technology to uh, it, to to help diagnose people or at least offer recommendations to the healthcare professionals. I can't imagine what the autonomous robots are, maybe surgical things. Up, you know, I know that there's places in Halifax where there's, a, there's at least one hospital in Halifax that uses an autonomous robot to uh, perform surgeries. So the world is changing. I agree there is a lot of hesitations with AI. Uh, a lot of real legitimate concerns with it, but you know we kind of have to make a choice. We either uh, don't adopt the technology and uh, and see where that leads us, and, or, or or try and do it as wisely as we possibly can. Okay. Um, we're talking a lot about uh, new you know new negotiations with Quebec and the hydro stuff up there, and, and I just want to add one kind of bit of information to it. We're not up in Labrador. I wondered why we hadn't been talking about any wind turbines. Of course, we've got the uh, Southern Labrador plan to put a diesel generator there, and then we've got um, potential uh, potential uh, doing Churchill Falls too, which which uh, Jordan mentioned could be a a uh, thousand megawatts. Uh, however, if if you read through, it could be up to one point six. Um, gigawatts of additional power. But what we don't seem to be talking about is, is wind, and, and I was looking into it uh, a little bit more. I know we, in Newfoundland we only have 54 megawatts of wind generation, which is only like 2% of our generating capacity just on the island. And uh, and I was you know, wondering, questioning why we haven't with the cost of wind generation being so inexpensive. Uh, versus um, the cost of uh, hydro and be able to use hydro as the stored capacity. So I just want to, you know, add that add that bit of insight. Up. There are states in the United States that actually have up to 40% of their wind, their power, their electrical generation coming from wind now. So, you know, at only 2%, there's obviously capacity for a lot more. Yes, but they're all also notably on an interconnected grid with the rest of the country. The only state that's not is Texas. That's true. So they can pull when they need to pull. But, yeah. you know, in Labrador, obviously, there 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 is interconnection because we're through Quebec, but I, I don't know exactly how that could tie in. The other thing is with all with all these hydrogen, wind hydrogen projects, they're going to have a lot of excess capacity in particular because we don't actually need a lot of this extra power in on the island in particular, except for the winter months when we're uh, when we're heating our homes. And, you know, one thing with the oil, a lot of people talk about the oil to uh, electric conversions, increasing demand. But what they don't talk about is a lot of people with electricity are actually uh, putting mini splits or heat pumps in to replace their uh, their direct baseboard heats because 70% of Newfoundlanders have, have baseboard heats. So there's actually more of a savings on demand going that way than, than would, be, would be the demand that increases from going oil to, to electric. But with all this excess capacity that they'll have in these wind in these wind to hydrogen projects, 
I think we can integrate. There may be a way to even send power through the Lille back to Labrador if we can uh, manage. I mean, if all four of those projects go, there'll be there'll be an incredible amount of surplus, especially in the winter, which is when we need the power, which is when they'll have the most surplus. Uh, uh, I don't know, because I think there's a lot of, there's more unknowns than knowns on that particular front integration with the grid. For instance, I don't know how they've arrived at those numbers. So they don't even have power purchase agreements or customers in place. No real firm idea what the initial offering will look like and the appetite on the other side of the pond, nor do we have any inclusion of the potential expansion, of which I'm told the expansion of the green hydrogen market will be extensive. So I don't know how they arrived at that. How can you say that you're going to have excess power when you don't even know how much of the green hydrogen ammonia you're going to sell in the first place? So I'm really confused by the statements coming from the companies on that front. How can you predict something without even a baseline of knowing what your customer base looks like for your product that you're manufacturing or making well you know hopefully they're smart and uh they they've got reliable uh, estimates made but the big thing for them is they need their guesstimates and, yeah they're well, straight I up mean, guesstimates i mean they can't even tell us what their market looks like no you're right but again like you always say it's not our money but i do think we should be figuring a way not to spend billions of dollars that we don't necessarily have on a hydro project if there's a way to integrate someone else's money into get solving our our winter problems which is most the issue um in in newfoundland but you know again i just thrown that out just the concept that we should if we can integrate wind into labrador then we should be doing it before we spend five or six times as much money as it costs to build a hydro project and the resulting cost to the ratepayers because a lot of this industry won't be in labrador if they have to pay 25 cents a kilowatt hour which is what it costs to build muskrat falls so you know it's something to be bear you know bear in mind it depends, depends who's going to build it uh depends who's going to build it and finance it uh, on top of that you know i'm even the germans have set aside 1.2 billion dollars to subsidize ratepayers when we talk about green hydrogen so there's a ton of unknowns uh, in that particular industry. It's not to say I'm for it or against it. And just to clarify the concept that it's not my money, it's not my provincial money, but it's my federal money. It's ranged between 15 and 40 percent. And we don't even know who's going to be eligible for whatever percentage based on a firm definition of green and the regulations associated with it. In this province, 80 percent renewables. In Nova Scotia, 51 percent is from coke or coal-fired generation. Hardly green to use that grid and pretend that the end product is green. So there's still some absolute unknowns before there's a so-called final investment decision made by the proponents because they don't even know what the tax credit looks like at this stage. You know, the Americans are talking about having very strict definitions and strict regulations to decide what is actually green versus gray. So still yet, to, still a lot of balls in the air here that have to be caught and better understood by not only governments, but by us. Uh, Tom, we're quickly running out of time. Quick comment on affordable housing. Well, one thing with, with affordability is, I'll, I'll, you know, the total operating of, of a home. And one thing which it seems to be uh, missing from uh, St. John's affordable housing is uh, the, uh, write, the willingness to write a letter. Jordan Brown was talking about letters earlier, but, but Rogers Communication has a Connected for sex, Success program where people can get uh, internet into their homes for as low as nine ninety nine a month. And there's a lot of organizations, uh, Newfoundland Labor Housing and our income support uh, part of the province will write these letters for people to qualify, but apparently the city of St. John's will not. And I have to question why. Uh, you know, it, it should be as simple as, uh, as look, if it's a rent, it's over the, like a rent test. In other words, if, there, if there's something where you're getting some sort of, your rent is tied to your income, then it's a no-brainer. There's, there's 
places all across the country that actually will write letters. I'm calling on the city, and part of my platform will be to get the city to step up and uh, provide letters for the people who are who would qualify, so that they can not have to pay $100 a month for their internet, instead pay 9.99. I appreciate the time, Tom. We're off to the news. Take care, everyone. You Bye-bye. too. Bye bye. Tom Davis is running for the. Ward 4 seat at Municipal Council here in the city of St. John's. And, of course, the other candidate currently in the play, in play is uh, Greg Smith. All right. So when people send me texts to my email address, which I'm happy to take however you want to communicate, if I simply reply via email, am I ensuring they get it? Because this guy is sending me test after test. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. So I don't know if he's getting my responses, but I am trying to reply. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Robert's in the queue. He'd also like to talk about some green hydrogen. We're anticipating a call from the Promises Consumer Advocate, Dennis Brown, as well. And whatever you want to talk about right after this. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program with the advent of the Professional Women's Hockey League. And of course, we know local Maggie Connors was drafted by Toronto and played in the inaugural game. Joining us on line number two is Maggie Connors. Good morning, Maggie. You're on the air. Hi, how are you doing? Doing great. How about you? Good, thank you. Just before we get into this amazing opportunity for women to play professional hockey, and the organization, you know, six months later after it was announced, here we go, and in the dressing room, Billie Jean King and all the rest of it's so cool. Mm -hmm. But if you don't mind, I'd like to bounce back to your career at Princeton for a second. Because the demands on the student-athlete at that level, in that type of program, with that type of academic institution, talk about juggling it, because one of my sons played varsity on the mainland. I have some other family Mm -hmm. friends who are in the same circumstance coming up in the near future. Give them some tidbits about how to manage your time and what it was like for you yeah I mean obviously it's um it's pretty difficult kind of to juggle it off the bat but I think you know it's just all about time management you kind of realize the schedule that you have every day and the demands on school um that's required for a particular week and it's just figuring out when you have time when you can get it done I think you know a lot of it for me and learning how to almost like be good at school in the situation that you're in and to be successful was, you know, always kind of trying to get ahead of the game in terms of, you know, doing your schoolwork early, things like that, seeing when you have openings in your schedule. And it definitely, it took me some practice for sure. It's not something that, that I was good at right away when I walked in, but obviously the demands are, are so high and on both academics and athletics that you kind of have to manage your time pretty well. Hockey's been good to you. Get to play for your country, get to play in the NCAA at an Ivy League school like mm-hmm. Princeton, get to play some professional hockey. So, you know, on top of that, there's the issue not only what hockey's done for you, but what you're doing for hockey. First off, before we get to your experience in the games and what it means to you and all that stuff, to have your mom and dad and other friends and family, I think you had eight people in the stands for the inaugural game. Talk about mm-hmm. the family and what it's meant, you know, not only in your hockey career, but to have them there for, for that experience. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously, I was so happy that kind of all my, a lot of my family and friends were able to make it and even a ton more watch on TV and kind of reach out and support. And obviously it just, it means everything because I wouldn't even be in the situation if it wasn't for all their kind of help throughout the way, but obviously through kind of the emotional support and, um, you know, not, things aren't always on the up. And so, you know, whenever kind of they needed to step in and help me and whether my game's going well or not, they've always been there. And so kind of this is, 
I think that moment was just as big for them as it as it was for me and I was so happy that they were able to be there and you know my mom was uh, mom and dad were the ones that kind of were waiting in the queue to get those season tickets the second that they could because they were so excited for, for me and obviously the the league and so you know I think to have everyone there it obviously it meant a ton and um, I know that there's there's plenty of the people that have reached out to support me and it just it's it's amazing the support that I've received yeah I see your dad around we talk about you all the time okay <laughs> what did you study at Princeton um, I studied politics politics Mm-hmm. Oh, good God. We're not going to talk about that today, Maggie. Okay, so you get to play with some of the biggest names in the game, right? I mean, I, I can't remember how many countries are represented in the Professional Women's Hockey League, mm-hmm. but even on your team, Sarah Nurse, which I think holds the record for scoring at, at Olympic Games, Turnbull mm-hmm. and Natalie Spooner and others. You know, it's one thing to bring your caliber of play to the team, but then women mm-hmm. like Nurse and Spooner and Turnbull and others, it must be a little bit... Uh, inspiring to see players that have played at that international level yeah no a thousand percent it's it's those players that I mean for me I looked up to when I was going through kind of the the levels of hockey and Natalie Spooner I've mentioned many times has been like my favorite player since she came to Newfoundland in 2010 with the national team and so to now kind of be on the same team and be watching them and learning from them every day and getting a chance to actually play with them on a line is is pretty crazy and kind of a full circle moment but I mean they're absolutely absolutely remarkable players um, I think it's it speaks to the experience that they have when they're leading our team and they're the ones kind of guiding us through these big moments and you know they knew the kind of the scope that was on our first game and the intention it was uh, pretty crazy there's about three million people that watched it and plus kind of the hype around it and so you know they they were the ones that kind of brought it back to a perspective and reminded us how big it was but kind of taught us how to play in a in a big game like that so I think um, they're obviously incredible players but also great people and you know they're they're the ones leading our team and I couldn't be happier to be on the team with them yeah I'll add uh, I'll add Renata Fast to that name of you know yeah, real recognizable players so mm-hmm. inside that world you know the unfortunate reality is Maggie and you've heard this just like everyone else has heard it when we talk about women's professional sports you know even in the women's soccer team and that quest for equity with the men's side and then you'll have people who will detract from the women's game whether they ever watched it or not you know for me it was a little bit more physical than I was used to watching when I watched your first game against New York what do you say to the detractors or do you simply tune it out because you see it I suppose if you're on social media they'll talk about the pace of play and the skill of the players and all the rest of those things that people who dismiss women's hockey what do you do with the detractors how do you hear it yeah, I mean, I think for me, I kind of, I just block that totally out. I think, you know, anytime I kind of get questions about the pay difference between us and the men and, you know, whether it's the skill level, whether it's the speed, you know, I think obviously we're not men and it's a different game. And obviously kind of, you know, it's just so exciting that our league has just started and the NHL has been around for over a hundred years. And so it's a completely different game, obviously, um, we fully respect them. I watch the NHL all the time. I absolutely love it, but I just think I try to not compare. I think kind of celebrating our success right now is is just as important as you know celebrating the NHL players um, and trying not to compare. Um, but I think you know for us, like if anything, the response that I've seen has been like majorly positive in terms of the games that people have seen. Um, I think for me, even watching on TV, I think it looks like a very fast game. I know for sure it is when you're playing in it. 
um, and the physicality is there. And I think obviously the players and the fans absolutely love that. So, you know, I, we've been blessed with obviously a, a very positive response to viewers watching the games. And, you know, I think we were, we were hopeful for that. We kind of knew that that's how it would be, but you kind of have people questioning that before it starts. But I think, uh, those people have been quieted a bit after watching the first few games. Glad to hear it, and I'm glad I asked the question. Uh, we should mention yeah. that, of course, in the first game against New York, Maggie was the player of the game. You got the speed, you got the jets that much, I can tell, from watching on television. How, talk about how you get treated as a professional player, because we see with the NHLers, you know, traveling private, staying in five-star hotels, and I know you know, as a traveling hockey player playing with Princeton, and prior to that in your career, What's the pro pampering feel like? Is it different than what it was in the NCAA? Because I'm sure Princeton pulls out all the stops for its varsity athletes. So talk about being a pro and how you're treated as a pro. Yeah, I mean, I would say we're treated the best possible way we can be. Like, I was treated amazing at Princeton, but this is kind of a whole new level. Um, Obviously, it's it's the professional game. And so whether that's, you know, little things, I don't know, anything from your, like, equipment to being fed to kind of obviously travel where I think I couldn't be couldn't be treated better and you know it's it's something where they take care of everything and all you have to do is step on the ice and play and I think obviously we're super grateful and um, appreciative of being in the situation that we're in with that and all the staff and equipment people and medical that kind of make that possible it all goes out to them but um, obviously when you're talking about kind of the idea of what professional is like when they were making this league they wanted it to be as professional as, as it could be, you know, that is the level and that's the expectation. And whether you're kind of comparing it to other professional leagues, that's what we are. That's what we wanted. We didn't want it to be kind of below that and hold that high standard. And so obviously it's been amazing. I've been treated um, so well. I can't, I have nothing, no bad things to say at all, only praise. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been amazing. And all that kind of professional lifestyle and treatment definitely goes uh, to appreciation to all of our staff. And so you're in Minnesota tomorrow night to get to play in some pretty good brands, the XL Energy mm-hmm. Center in Minnesota. When you get to Ottawa, I play TD Place. So that's all mm-hmm. pretty cool. Uh, listen, congratulations on all you've achieved so far, and uh, good luck in the future. What's the conversation sound like amongst the uh, the players on the team and the league itself talk about expansion? Because currently six teams in place, three north, three south of the border. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, there are, we hope, I'm sure, many players coming into the league and stuff, like you hope that it's only going to grow from here. I haven't obviously heard anything on, on an expansion or anything like that, but I mean, the the way it's gone so far, you can just tell that the, the demand is crazy. We've sold out all of our games. I have, I have people texting me from all over to try and come and me trying to scramble for people tickets and stuff because I would would love anyone that wants to come to our games to obviously watch and so it's been it's been remarkable the the attention the fans the people that are trying to trying to watch our games and so I think hopefully this is kind of just the start and I think the sky's the limit for us and um, you know whether that means the league's going to get more teams we're going to move buildings whatever that may be I think kind of the sky is the limit for for where this league is going to go. What do you think your participation as a professional is going to mean for your hopes to play on the senior women's side at the Olympic Games, for instance, or the Worlds? Um, You know, I think I look at kind of the position I'm in right now as just another step in in my development. Um, You know, playing around such incredible players that have been to the Olympics and, you know, are a step up from college, it, it pushes your game as well. And you know, you watch them, you learn from them, 
and obviously you compete against them, which makes you better. And so to me, I just look at this as another step up and this is kind of going to improve my game more. And hopefully, obviously, the better that I can, the, be- the best that I can be hopefully pushes me to maybe one day achieve that. I appreciate you making time for the show, Maggie. It's great speaking with you. Continue with good luck and good health. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Maggie Connors, a forward with Toronto in the Professional Women's Hockey League. Great stuff. Let's take a break. Robert, stay right there. Appreciate your patience. Talk a bit of green hydrogen. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Robert, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. This is Robert Loader calling from Point Limington again. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, I'm okay. Uh, it's a little anxious, but that's it. Um, so I just wanted to call in and discuss a few little issues that I, well, not little, but a few concerns that I have about uh, the wind ammonia projects as proposed for the island, specifically the one here in Everett. So uh, I read online that Minister Parsons confirmed that the decommissioning and deconstruction costs would not be covered by the ratepayers. It would be a cost that's included by or taken care of by the owners of the companies, correct? Yep. So one concern that I have about that is that in the case of Everett, in their last public consultation meeting, when that question was asked, they outright said no. So with my calculations and information I found online, the cost in order to decommission 452 of these 7 megawatt wind turbines could be potentially between three quarters and $1 billion. So that's 10% of their budget that they're proposing not in their calculations and allocated for at this time. So that's a big concern right now because as far as I can tell, none of these projects are going to be on budget or under budget. So this is just an example. What's that based on? What's that? That they won't be able to hit their budgets. Well, I just don't think they will, based on the track record of like for other buildings that are or other major pro- uh, construction projects, such as Muskrat Falls and um, the Site C Dam in BC. I believe all of the larger construction projects in the billions of dollars are have gone over budget, as well as the reports coming out of China with their wind to, or their ammonia plants. Um, they're having issues with their electrolyzers not being able to run in the lower efficiency numbers, so they have to run at peak capacity. So, like. All these unforeseen problems with the new technology is going to cost money to overcome the challenges that they don't see right now. Plus, we're in a remote location that they're not really, I don't think that they're understanding the access and the issues for installing a lot of these turbines in these areas. But like I said, the cost of up to 10% of this EVREC budget is not allocated right now in their, to decommission the project. So that's a concern of mine. Uh, and of course, they're going to have to cover those liabilities, as we're told. And every single time we speak with the minister or responsible, that is part of the conversation because we need to know on record that any decommissioning, any of those uh, liabilities, environmental and otherwise, will be on the hook of solely the proponent, not me. That's correct, yeah. And that's what I mean. So, like, with uh, with them not having that billion dollar or potentially three quarters to uh, one billion dollars in their budget right now, the proposed project estimate cost of $10 billion is already 10% off. So, like, this is very concerning that these people are coming in without presenting the proper information and having correct figures to present to the public. And secondly, uh, the people that in this area here that are emailing and asking legitimate concerned questions, they're not getting any responses back from the emails provided at the information session. So we went to their office to try and talk to them, and we weren't able to access it. There was nobody there. So I peeked through the window, and there was nothing in their office except just empty desks. So it was the same setup as it was when uh, when Mr. Seeger had his uh, Anthony Insurance Department running there. So they just put a sign on the outside of the building and took a few pictures and walked away, it looks like. So I'm really, really concerned with a lot of things that are happening out here in Central. 
And another thing, like I believe we talked about last time, was the cost of selling and buying power to and from the grid for these companies. And it could potentially be a secondary revenue stream that hasn't been discussed much right now. So one thing that I would like clarification is that these companies, if they're purchasing power from our grid to support uh, their production levels when the wind isn't blowing, then I want the confirmation that we're the province and hydro is not going to be paying more for the power coming from their plants than what they're selling it for, or else the profits are going to come from the taxpayers and hydro's budget. Yeah, we have no idea of the price point in either direction at this point. And that's right, but I believe like that's a very good... A firm place to stand is that whatever their purchase price is, that they're buying power from the grid, that they won't be able to sell it back to us for more than what we're selling it to them for. Or if not, like I said, those differences come from the ratepayers and the hydro's profits, which eventually goes to the, to the provincial government coffers. Fair enough. I mean, those are questions we ask about Jennifer Williams and Andrew Parsons and everyone else who's in a leadership position on this front. But I don't think, like, a couple of things. I don't even think those negotiations can begin until some of the moving parts that are yet to be finalized are in place. For instance, the tax credit. None of these companies are going to make a final final investment decision until those regulations and definitions are in place. It's just simply not going to happen. You can't possibly have a business model that's going to afford you an opportunity to do business with Goldman Sachs or whoever to get those billions of dollars required. So nothing's going to be negotiated between price point for purchase and sell of power and integration with the grid until we even know they're going to move forward. No, that's exactly right. Um, another point as well. Um, oh, sorry, just slipped my mind here now. Um, oh, the uh, the people in the area. So they're proposing and, and commenting and putting the information out there that they have support of all the communities and councils in the area. So me and a group of other concerned citizens, um, specifically Leanna, she we reached out to our municipality and asked for a copy of the letter that was sent in support because like we didn't receive any um, uh, opinions or or there was no reach out or asking the citizens of the community what their opinions were but all of a sudden we hear that there's letters from the community saying that uh, they're supporting these projects so we reached out to our municipality and uh, they said that they weren't aware of any letters of support so it turned out that um, the company Everex sent out these letters um, basically saying that they wanted permission to come and give an information session in the community. So then when the mayor signed that, that is what they're using as a letter of support. So it was, in my opinion, very misleading. And the information that they're putting out to the public is very unethical, in my opinion. And if you really want to talk about ethics, especially with the case of Everett, you can look into the past work history of uh, the chairman, Ravi Sood. And I've just made a quick comment last time I talked to you about Buchanan Renewables. So I've done more research into his other companies. And so far, I've found two human rights complaints uh, studies completed in the projects that he's either chaired or uh, founded. And there's another one I found just recently regarding the sale of um, the gold mines that he had an interest in, um, and they have uh, issues right now in lawsuits against their labor or their, their workers have lawsuits against the management for um, occupational health and safety violations and uh, Cecilia or silica dust issues. So uh, I can't remember the name of the disease. But what parts of the world are we talking about? Um, well, I believe the, the Feronia Inc. was the um, palm oil plantation. Um, that was bought from 
uh, Unilever. I can't remember exactly the part of the world that was, but these companies have a history of going to these remote and uh, lower income areas and promising that they're going to improve living conditions for the workers and the, the residents in this area. But realistically, what they're doing is taking advantage of uh, tax credits, and then they're paying their executives and their investors um, good salaries and helping them out, and they're making profits off of speculation, and then leaving the secondary investors coming in after the first rise of the, um, the stock price, and then they're leaving the residents in the area with much worse outcomes than they initially had. So. But of course, it's different doing business in the Congo, for instance, than Canada. So it's important to know what jurisdictions we're talking about when we talk about violations, leaving the place worse than when you found it, those types of things. Well, for example, they had a, um, a, a project, Buchanan Renewables, that was um, supposed to be doing uh, building a renewable energy plant using old rubber trees. Um, so what happened was they proposed a $100 million renewable energy plant. Um, so then years after there was, I think the budget was over two and a half times. It was over $200 million. They never, ever ended up producing any power. Um, the investors were all paid back, but the residents are way worse off than they ever were. Their livelihoods were, were ruined, and they also have um, reports of um, abuse, sexual abuse and other abuse for local residents from the people that work there. Do you acknowledge now, it's important to know where, where, where we're talking about? What country? You just give me one moment and I can find it for you because I've got all this uh, written down here. But uh, it's all it's all listed in our Facebook group. It's called Proposed Wind Turbines and Ammonia Plant and Exploits Concerned Citizens. So we're trying to uh, put out as much factual information as we can on that page without going into the weeds and going off tangent and getting involved in other uh, issues. And Robert, before I get to the news, which is in 30 seconds, I've been asked by several people, the next time that you call, they want me to ask you this specific question. So the page seems seems to be only for people opposed, those who chime in with uh, potential upsides of green hydrogen and support of the industry and or this particular proponent, they've been blocked. And I believe you're one of the administrators. So are you allowing and welcoming opposing views to yours, for instance? Absolutely, 100%. And we always uh, approve that. And we let anybody speak on any view at all in their, as long as it's respectful and factual. So right now, there's only two people that I had to block from the group. So one was a gentleman who um, was attacking personal profiles of members. Uh, so he would go into a public profile image and he would call people names. So I blocked him because it was not good and it's not proper for anybody to do that and it's just disgusting in my opinion and there's another gentleman gordon and he um was making arguments but his arguments weren't backed up any fact and every time you would present fact that disproves that argument he would just move the goalpost so his contribution to the group was not um not good for anybody because it was just like i told him about the issues in the past of uh, ravi and he said well that's just the case he said that's some some businesses are like that. <laughs> so he just doesn't seem to care. But yeah, like we allow open and uh, fair, honest communication as long as it's respectful. We don't want anybody going off about politicians or blaming political parties or going off on uh, conspiracy theories without having facts to prove up their 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 claims. So right now, like a lot of the other groups, you can see like they're blaming um, George Soros and the other guys and and like blaming EVs and all these different things. So we're trying to stick directly to the wind energy projects, the ammonia projects, the economics of it, the human impacts, the environmental impacts. 
I appreciate you making time for the show, Robert. I'm late for the news. I'll give you another 30 seconds to wrap it up. Uh, well, like I said, I'll send you an email with the with the information that I have regarding those um, human rights investigations so you can look into the, the countries. I know one of them is Liberia, and I believe the other one, um, I can't remember off the top of my head now because I've done so much reading. So, But I really appreciate your time today. And like I said, uh, when you talk to the people on the streets and in the communities here, their support is not is not anywhere near what they're saying. I think I've spoken to one or two people that actually support it, and the rest are uh, vehemently against it. Thanks for the time, Robert. Stay in touch. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, time for the news. When we come back, we're going to say good morning to the PC member for Fairland. He's the opposition critic for transportation. That's Loyal O'Driscoll about snow clearing. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. As advertised, join us on line number three is the PC member for Fairland. He's the critic for transportation, Loyola O'Driscoll. Good morning, Loyola. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. First, I want to start, uh, Patty. I heard you speaking to uh, Maggie Connors there, and I certainly did watch that game uh, last weekend or the week before when it was on, and it was a great showing from her for sure. And uh, you know, I just had to add to that that you know, in the district where I am with the Google Pacers and the Southern Shore Breakers, female hockey has grown exponentially in the last two years. It's unbelievable how many girls are playing hockey, and how many young ladies are playing, and they're opening up the doors for these young ladies to be able to have a dream and to look forward to moving on in their hockey career. So I think it was great great to see her and uh, it was great to watch and of course one of the driving forces of female hockey in this province is a fellow from your neck of the woods Kenny yes absolutely Kenny Williams was Kenny a great Williams. driving force yeah no doubt about it and uh, you know this was all led and it's, uh, it, it, I think it's grown 50 or 60 percent in in our district uh, in female hockey so it's great to see uh, Patty, I'm calling in about 24 hours no clearing, and I'm going to say probably a month ago or less that the minister was on saying that he wouldn't be reinstating 24 hours no clearing, and I think that's a big mistake. I think it's something that should happen. You know, I've had numerous calls uh, over the weekend, had a couple of calls, and the storm before that as well. No snow clearing out, and people leaving Cape Royal, I'll use as an example, and Fairland and Calvert, going to work uh, as nurses, and people going to Argentia as well, and going to Lang Harbor, are on the road at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. They had to be to work for 7 o'clock. And, you know, they're on the road in these conditions. And I think it's something that this government has got to reinstate in this in this, this area right now. I mean, it, it's dangerous. It's a safety issue. And it's something that definitely should be looked at. Well, you know, when you ask the, the, the various transportation ministers over the last number of years about that exact issue... They all have a very similar refrain when saying, you know, well, if there's emergency, then the plow operator and the plow can be dispatched. You know, for instance, if there's an ambulance being called. But I don't understand that because if I have an emergency that requires an ambulance, so they're telling me that it's okay to have, take the amount of time it takes to get the operator out of bed, get him to the, the depot, get him in the plow and dispatch wherever the ambulance is, is reasonable. Like, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I don't think we need a full complement to staff on every single day, 24-7. When the snow is coming, we probably should. But I don't get that answer to the ambulance question. No, and I agree, Patty. Like they're going to make a, if they make a call at three o'clock in the morning, somebody's on call. You were right on. They got to be called. They got to get out of bed, go ahead and clear their own cars, get to the get to the depot where they're going, get in their vehicles and get them warmed up and get out. And it's only that road that's going to be touched where the ambulance is going to go or wherever the accident may be or whatever happens. 
So, you know, to say that they're going at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, that's fine. But these roads take two and a half to three hours to get them completely done through the whole district. And not only my district, every district that's out there. So, you know, it's something very serious that for a safety point, they got to reinstate this. And, I, and our leader has come out and said that we would reinstate that when we get in. You know, that, that's, uh, that's something that we certainly put out there in our blue book. You know, we're going, we're going to be looking at that and put, reinstating that. So our leader has certainly come out and said that. Yeah, I, I don't know if things are going to change, nor am I sure as to why they changed in the first place. Yeah, exactly, Patty. And, you know, I do appreciate the time to get on and put this out there. And, and, you know, we need the government to hear this. This is a safety issue, and it's too late when something happens. And, you know, there's there's always calls. I get so many calls and so many emails. Because when they leave Cape Royal, they don't have the roads. It just happens sometimes that, you know, they're they're called in, the road's not cleared, until you get to Mount Pearl and St. John's where they got 24-hour snow clearing. You know, the Ghouls Bypass Road sometimes is not cleared, and, and it's it's bad conditions until you get to Mount Pearl or St. John's in my district. So, you know, it's something that's very concerning. I take a lot of calls on it, and it's, you know, something that the government should be looking at to reinstate. Fair enough. I appreciate the time. Anything else this morning, Loyola? No, Patty, I do appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay. Okay, bye bye. It's PC member for Fairland, Loyola O'Driscoll. Now let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the province's consumer advocate. That's Dennis Brown. Dennis, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. So, as you indicated in your email, there's no shortage of issues to broach. Where would you like to start this morning? Well, we'll start with uh, Newfoundland Power's uh, rate increase application. Um, Newfoundland Power. Most people may not be aware, but Newfoundland Power has over earned in this particular year, the year 2023 that's just completed, they've over-earned by $3.5 million. So they got every cent they were due, and now we have $3.5 million in over-earnings. They got $3.5 million more than they're due. Now, Is that based on a percentage of revenue? Is that how you do that calculation? Well, it's the actual, uh, the uh, the, the uh, uh, is after taxes. It's a, it's part of their profit, but it will not go to them. Under the rules, if they over-earn, the over-earnings have to be uh, dealt with by the PUB, so we're going to be addressing these over-earnings. Now, despite the fact that they've over-earned, they're looking for a rate increase. They're looking for more. Um so they're seeking two increases, one for 1.5% that would take effect uh, in July uh, of this year, and they're looking for another 5.5% uh, that would uh, take place in 2025 and 2026. Now, now they, they have made, in this particular year, They've made in profit $47 million. That's what uh, the projections are. Nearly $4 million a month profit. So uh, they're looking to increase their rate of return from 8.5% to 9.8%. That's what they want to do. And if they increase that to 9.8%, if the board were to grant them that, they would make another roughly $9 million more in profit each and every year. So the application is really about their profit, and they're, um, they're, they're anxious to make more money for their shareholder. 
Now, we're opposing these applications. Uh, we uh, have a team assembled. There will be a hearing at the uh, Public Utilities Board. The date of the hearing hasn't been announced, but uh, there will be a lot of issues in this particular hearing. And uh, I don't think, based on what I see, that the board uh, could even consider granting them um, an extra $9 million a year in profit. We have to deal yet with Muskrat Falls. Before we get to Muskrat, just react to the comments coming from Newfoundland Power President Gary Murray. And I'm, I'm sure you heard them as much as I did. So talking about cost management, you know, serving more customers more efficiently than they did 10 years ago. Cut operating costs per customer by almost 10%, of course, adjusted for inflation as required. Then the replacement uh, aging uh, assets and infrastructure, preparation for how they can better handle storms. So speak directly to those comments coming from the President Gary Murray. Uh, they get paid for all their costs, uh, Petty. All that infrastructure we're paying for, that's, that's not built into this rate increase that they're seeking. We already pay for that, and we pay for it over time. So, uh, like in this particular year, they're looking for uh, in 120, 150, $120 million more in their capital expenditures. Now, the capital expenditures, once they get an amount of money and the capital expenditures are carried out, they're carried out over time, um, these amounts go into their rate base, and uh, based on their total amount, their uh, rate of return is determined by that. Uh, we have a real problem here with capital expenditures because uh, the board has not held a hearing on Newfoundland Power's capital expenditures since 2005. And the board told us recently that they're not, they prefer not to hear these cases. They want it all done in the paper, a so-called paper hearing. Well, the Public Utilities Board is not operating under some flag of convenience. The Public Utilities Board has statutory obligations, and when the ratepayers of the province are requesting a hearing, that should be given serious consideration, but it has not been. So the government has uh, now done changes to the Act so that if the board refuses us a hearing on these matters, we can go and request the lieutenant governor and council to order them to hear. And I think that's a good thing. Dennis, I, I think you're willing to stay on hold for a second while I take my break quasi on time. We'll come back and start again. Sure. Okay, there we go. Dennis Brown, the consumer advocate on hold. Uh, last break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Unless we revisit our conversation with the province's consumer advocate on five. That's Dennis Brown. Dennis, you're back on the air. Okay, Patty. So we've had the comments about uh, Newfoundland Power's two rate hike applications and uh, the comments from Gary Murray and your thoughts on that. So just interestingly, you know, we have no real earthly idea what's going on behind closed doors as the province tries to negotiate with uh, Hydro-Quebec and the province of Quebec regarding 2041. But what do you make of uh, Roger Grimes' look back to 2002 and the consensus between the two provinces that Gull Island would be a go and Quebec maybe even, uh, be willing to finance the $4 billion price tag? Where do you think that goes? Uh, I think that that is a topic of discussion for sure. And a lot of this came up uh, during the Commission of Inquiry respecting Muskrat Falls because the commissioner did a segment of that hearing um, called Looking Forward. And what he did was he had experts 
look at the situation in which we would uh, find ourselves in 2041 and what we should be doing in anticipation of that. And uh, he said this. He writes very, very well. He said Hydro-Quebec has 34.2% of CFLCO shares, Newfoundland Power – no, I'm sorry, Newfoundland Hydro, uh, the government has – uh, the re- remaining uh, shares of uh, CFLCO. Uh, so, um, and he said, the these are going to be very difficult discussions with uh, with Hydro Quebec uh, 2041, and they should be discussing it now because uh, we're within 20 years of the expiration of that, and most people plan their electricity, these big projects, over a 20-year period. So we're into the period. There's no doubt about that. So the commissioner said um, that uh, both sides will need to compromise when we're dealing with that contract. They have uh, the transmission network, we have the generation, but they own 34% of the generation, too, um, through their shares in CFLCO. Um, the remaining 65.8% shares are owned by the government of Newfoundland. So he said there should be a compromise, and we're going to have to work things out. Uh, but he cautioned against expecting any kind of massive windfall. And I think uh, he's correct there. So um, a lot of people haven't read the report. The report came out right before COVID, and everyone got uh, uh, absorbed with COVID. And uh, uh, the Muskrat Falls, the Misguided Project, and the commissioner's report probably uh, took a back burner. Um, But the commissioner also talked about uh, Gull Island, and he said we shouldn't shy away from dealing with Gull Island, but of course uh, the province itself uh, would have no no money to put into Gull Island. But it could be, he said, uh, that uh, part of the bargaining with Hydro-Quebec could uh, include Gull Island. So he looked at all that at the time. So this has been looked at, and... And the government already has taken the commissioner's advice. They sent up a, um, uh, an expert panel, uh, which was something we recommended to the commission. We recommended uh, that the commissioner suggest an expert panel to examine um, 2041 and to uh, uh, make suggestions. So the government has already done that. That panel is assembled and has assembled and made recommendations. And now the government has stated publicly they have a, a, a three-person technical uh, team in place uh, uh, for dealing with uh, discussions with Hydro-Quebec. So that's where we are with it. But all of this is anticipated, and uh, the commissioner himself uh, uh, advocated that uh, these things could be done and could be done successfully if we are all willing to compromise. And that's a big word, <coughs> if and compromise. Uh, I've tried to extend it a little step further, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on it. You know, when we talk about equalization, I think hydro plays a massive role in equalization payments that go to the province of Quebec. They're able to subsidize rates to their rate pairs because they buy a lot of power from the upper Churchill at 0.2 cents per kilowatt hour. Consequently, they kind of cook the books on the hydro-Quebec side, and they are, uh, if they had to increase their rates by 4 cents, much closer to general market rates, they're equal 
equalization payment would fall from 13.1 to 5.1 billion dollars do you think that's a lever we can pull uh, I think it's something that uh, they will be very concerned with, but obviously there will have to be uh, fair market prices for electricity uh, in the future. So after 2041, there has to be fair market prices, and fair market prices uh, will be determined uh, by the market forces in play. Uh, right now, there's no one doing any kind of long contracts for electricity. Most people are buying on the spot market. Most uh, most provinces and states in the United States uh, are weary of, uh, of any kind of contract. The spot markets seem to provide cheap, cheaper. So there are all kinds of issues out there uh, in play. However, with 2041, I think there will have to be some kind of written contract. Um, because of the magnitude of it. I mean, we're dealing mm -hmm. with 5,400 megawatts. And uh, Hydro-Quebec will want that certainty, and we will want that certainty too. Uh, but, of course, there will have to be escalation clauses based on the cost of living, etc. So I think everyone is aware of the issues, and um, uh, our negotiators will be uh, well aware of the issues. They already had the benefit of the... Uh, uh, of Commissioner LeBlanc's uh, uh, advocacy of having an expert panel in play to, to deal with that. And um, they, that's already been done. So we're, we're a bit ahead of the game. And uh, I can see why we would not want to be negotiating in public. Uh, uh, oh, sure. That wouldn't suit anyone's interest. So uh, at some point, though, uh, uh, all these matters will have to uh, be debated and uh, by, uh, be approved by legislation. I think the federal government plays a role here, too, not just in the form of loan guarantees, but actual cash on the barrelhead. If federal government policy regarding immigration, electric vehicle mandates is going to require expansion and increased maintenance of the grid, I think the feds play an absolute role if Galt ever gets going. I mean, they've been looking for cleaner alternatives to fuel electricity here in the country. So if they're going to drive the buses aggressively as they have uh, in the recent past, I think there's absolutely a requirement for the feds. And once again, not just in the form of loan guarantees. Yeah, I agree. I think the feds will have a role. Uh, we have to be careful here. Um, uh, Grimes had uh, the Gull Island deal. It wouldn't have cost us anything. We would have gotten just money. We probably would have gotten, someone said, about $100 million from it by now in profit, and it wouldn't have cost us five cents. But uh, it turned into political fodder. Uh, one party said it isn't good enough, and rah, 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 and the other party said it is, and... and um, we didn't have uh, any uh, uh, objective experts weighing down on one side or the other. So we had to be careful that doesn't happen again with 2041. Uh, it's easy uh, to uh, make a political mess of it uh, to ensure that no one succeeds. So uh, I think, therefore, that the commissioner's advice that uh, uh, we should lower our expectations, not expect a windfall, but we should be expecting compromise. I appreciate the time this morning, Dennis. Thanks. All the best. Take care. You Take too. Care. All right. That's the consumer advocate, Dennis Brown. Just a quick mention. I, I do appreciate when people take the time to send me a message, but if you're texting to openline at POCM.com, apparently my reply is not getting to you. So if you'd like to communicate during the show, try to send me uh, an email versus a text so that I can reply when and if I have time. All right. Good show today. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.